and we're live here we go <laughs> well good morning everybody isn't that good a evening, good evening wherever you are good, good evening good morning in australia it's it's quite unusual for the three of us to be in front of the computer screens at this time of the day in australia uh, we have a tendency, obviously, to be doing our nightly pubcasts or weekly pubcasts. We've got a couple of guys already on board listening. Welcome, fellas. So we're going to have a little bit of a chat ourselves with you guys for probably the next hour or so, and then we have a very special guest coming on board. Um, you may have read it. This is probably why you guys are on. Uh, but we have Bob Kramer, world-renowned master smith, and chef knife maker coming on um all the way from washington state over in the us of a so just for the benefit of those that have joined us straight up um he'll be joining us at 11 o'clock our time um we are going to have a quick chat for an hour or so before he comes on just want to make that clear and what am I, we want to make that clear, don't we, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. okay. Let, let me just let me just let me just eat shit and let's get over with it. Okay, guys. So a couple of weeks ago, we supposed to have this have this podcast. It didn't happen, and you're wondering why did it happen. So yes, I made a mistake calculating the time difference. And when Bob said Bob sent me a message, "Hey, I'm ready for the recording. Send me the link." I realized he wasn't. Put that phone down. I fucking can't see it. Put it down. Put it down. <laughs> I looked at the message saying from Bob, yeah, I'm ready for the interview. I'm looking at the time. It was 10 o'clock in the morning. So I fucked up the time difference. And panicking, I'm calling Corin. Corin is like, I'm about to go to a big like international sales meeting. I can't do it now, man. Kev is outside. He's buying welding supplies because he booked up a welding class or something. He's like, nah, man, I can't do it. So I had to tell Bob two weeks ago, hey, Bob, I'm fucking useless. I cannot calculate the time difference, so there's no interview now. I'm sorry. And he has not replied. <laughs> okay, for those who doesn't have a screen, now Corin is showing the local time in Washington. Yes, Corin, I, I just said it again. Apparently, they had a fucking time change. I forgot the time change doesn't always apply. Sometimes it's, the difference is 15 hours, sometimes 13. Yeah, I, I missed that. Thanks for pointing it out. I, I can. It's on the screen, just in case you were. Down. If you also on that screen, Mert, when you go across like three, three across, and it says like DST ended. Is that like daylight saving time ended? I can't see the screen. I'm on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> But to, to the benefit of one of our listeners in particular, Ian Anderson, g'day, Ian, how are you? He's from Colorado, so we're at the perfect time for our guest, our listener from Colorado. How good's that? Fucking awesome. What's a bad time? <laughs> Next show, Matt, I'm fucking useless. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, mate. Thanks for the support, buddy. Yeah. You get like the you're getting the level of support you deserve and you're getting the level of support we expect from our listeners. <laughs> well, the, the thing is, though, we still have Bob Kramer lined up to come on board for Yay! the... We've got to call this a podcast this morning because 
I just finished my second double shot coffee. <laughs> and uh, Corin's drinking a cup of tea and Mert's probably on the on the water. It's a little bit Gee. strange that, you know, here's the beer, <laughs> beer from last time. Um, yeah. So we have with us our usual array of presenters. We have Corin from Gamico, Mert from Tansy Knives, and myself, Kev from Kev's Forge. Mert, what have you been up to for... Well, it's been a little while. What have you been up to, mate? Mate, it's been it's been a couple of weeks since we talked last time. What have I done? Um, I worked on the yard. I've done knives. I broke things, and I realized I'm useless in fixing things at home. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, how do we take a positive out of that, mate? <laughs> okay, the okay. positive part. Positive part was the, yeah, well, Corin came over for dinner with his lovely wife. I cooked for them. But other than that, yeah, it, it wasn't much productive, man. I had a I had an integral Damascus knife that I had. It wasn't the worst. I managed to finish it. That was the highlight of the last two weeks. What else? I finished another knife, but, man, my daughter's closet, my daughter's closet was broken, and that lid was there for two years. And I said, that's enough. I'm going to fucking fix it. I filled up the broken parts with the epoxy and I bought the, I went to Bunnings and lined up the hinges so I buy the right shit. And so when I filled up the epoxy, apparently I didn't fill up right. So the fucking hinges don't fit. And the hinges that I bought, they got different size fucking screw shit compared to the IKEA one. So they don't fix. So I had to fill up the holes with the more epoxy and then I put the door. The motherfucking IKEA stuff was like a one centimeter shorter, so the lid doesn't close. Oh dear! But you but, had a go, Bert. You can and, close it. Yeah, you can close it if you close one lid. Then the next one, my daughter is perfectly fine with it. But you knowing, like, you're fucking useless. You couldn't fix a simple door hinged so. Anyway, Just run a circular saw straight up between the two doors, mate. Should be apples. Yeah. Other than that, not much. What have you guys been up to? <sighs> Big deep breath. <Car. laughs> yeah. Yeah, look, I, I actually went up to the Hunter Valley uh, last week and um, I uh, went and visited some family up there and I had a conference. Oh, pardon me. And better get that out before Bob starts. And um, I went and had dinner at, and saw uh, Chateau de Meurt in, uh, in the Hunter Valley. It was, uh, it was something quite special. Um, fantastic meal, uh, great family, and to see Meurt's workshop, brilliant. And, um, uh, yeah, what a steak. It was the biggest steak I've had outside of America. So, Did you say my was, workshop was brilliant or seeing my yeah. workshop was brilliant? Well, I didn't want to be rude. I just I'll leave that up to interpretation from our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> well, it's good. We should run a poll. Seeing it or being it. Problem with your workshop is it's like all dirty and looks like you use it. I cleaned it before you got here, you asshole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So um uh yeah there we go and that was you got to meet my, my puppy you got to meet my dogs 
I got your puppy. Your puppy's obscene. I never knew what a kanga was. Like a kanga. How do you say it? Kanga. Kanga. Yeah. Bloody hell. They are a big dog. I thought like a great dog was big, but no. And and it's it's always it's always reassuring when um, you go to someone else's house and you have to be introduced to the dog outside, which is barking at you, stands six foot high at the shoulders. Because if you come if you come onto his territory and you're not introduced outside, shit could get real. So I'm like, yeah, no, that's all right. So he comes out, he's barking <laughs> in our faces. Huge dog. We walk inside and um, we didn't stop barking for about half an hour. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I'd shut myself fully by then. So there was no more mess going to be made. <laughs> you wouldn't. You, look, honestly, anybody thinking of jumping Mert's fence, <laughs> ride a wheel. <laughs> Great dog, though. <laughs> Once you yeah. get to know him, he's awesome. Yeah, he'll play with you. He'll he'll open his mouth and nibble on you. Yep, and you just let him do it. <laughs> he's, he's, um, uh, yeah, and just watching it play with a puppy, it's so gentle. With uh, Like, the puppy is the size of its head. Um, yeah, pretty cool. And then, yeah, beautiful dinner. We had Mert running around like a, <clears> like a chef, really, cooking six different things at once. Like... I, I couldn't have done it. Too many saucepans. But, um, yeah, yeah, got it done and it was beautiful. Nice mushroom yep. sauce and broccoli and risotto and shit. Yeah, it was great. And not shit. There was no shit. It was really good. Thanks, Bert. And it really no nice. Really nice. No worries. So, uh, Thanks for coming. Actually, the, the best meal we had in the Hunter, and in fact, probably the best meal we've had all year. So, yeah, excellent. Nice. Yep. What do you mean? Kaya. Well, we had a, we had a sad occasion. Well, still is sad. Last week, I posted it on Facebook. I don't know if I've got my Facebook locked down to friends only or not. Um, but we lost one of our dogs. Anyone that's been to my house um, as a friend or as a as a person on a course would have known that I have two dogs that greet you at the door and hang out and just they're pretty cool, very relaxed. Um, so we had an old boy Murph and. Poor old Murph just got to that stage where he just he just stopped working, unfortunately. That was last week. Still getting over the fact that he's not around. We've got our other puppy. Well, he's 12 years old too. But we've got our other dog that, you know, he's missing him. We're all missing him. So it's put that, you know, you have, you have a dog for 14 years that, and especially the last four or five years that I've been home on my own working and that's your companion. It's, it's a big loss. It leaves a gaping hole. But the cool thing is when you see someone like yourself that has two dogs, um, you know, that dog owner, lover community is pretty strong. Outside of that, uh, back running classes. I, I had a couple of, I had a group of guys back, uh, three, three mates that uh, weren't as trying, I guess, in terms of what they wanted to achieve this time around. Uh, the previous three guys were, they were, friends as well so um and i've got a bunch of a uh, bunch of work on the go that's keeping me busy and keeping my sort of enthusiasm up which is good i need to get some knives over to the us i've just got to now knuckle down and do that my nephew Mert, is you probably think he's crazy but my nephew is a third year apprentice chef over in wa and um might be something on the cards for him coming up soon as well in terms of my knives and knife making and whatnot. So 
looking out for that. Yeah, so a bit of sad stuff happening, but we're going all right with it. You know, these things, these things occur. It just doesn't get easier, unfortunately. No, no, mate, losing a dog, losing family is what it is. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. He, he, we, yeah. we actually rescued we rescued him from the RSPCA when he was only six weeks old or something. And the oh. poor old bugger had, like, issues his entire life. He was skittish, had anxiety because in the six weeks before we got him, he was obviously treated, treated really poorly. Um, we treated him, we revered him almost in a godlike sense as we do with our dogs. They're, they have beds in the house, free access. They're treated well. They're loved well. So, you know, in his few his hours, hours before he before he was uh, put to sleep, he got to experience pretty much everything and anything in the fridge that would be remotely pleasing to a dog, including chocolate and uh, chocolate cheese, steak, bacon, whatever, whatever we could give him just to make that last bit of time pass, which makes me feel good because, like I said, you know, if I if I was going to go out like that, I'd be fucking happy. I'd want to go out with a belly full of bacon and chocolate and cheese. The only thing it's likely didn't... likely going to happen, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I know. But I'm going to be clutching at my heart for those last few <laughs> seconds as that does happen. The only thing we didn't give him, which I was tempted to, was to crack a can of beer open or something and let him see if he can have a bit of a get a bit of grog into him. But you know, I didn't want him to go out in pain, so. Um, yeah, no, it's all good. That's all good. Uh, yeah, so, no, I wouldn't say, wouldn't say. so, so, yeah, I've been. Uh, oh, we went just go back because, um, we're saying about, um, Mer was just saying for the last time that we were we mistakenly had Bob 12 hours around on our time zone. Um, yeah, I got, I got more, uh, gas for my MIG and I had. Jake from 116 Blades come up. Um, he was up the, from the coast for a couple of days with his wife doing some stuff, and he put a couple of hours out of his day up here then came out just to give me enough information and a bit of a start on how to, you know, troubleshoot welding. Uh, laid down a few few beads, weld lines, whatever, that were, you know, reasonably clean considering what they were prior to that um yeah and now it's just a case of practice 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 but ideally for me it's just going to be well i've done a few fixes around the workshop which is surprising some stuff stuck together some hasn't <laughs> i had, had one thing where i just put two little two tiny little tacks hoping this thing would hold uh yeah i should have just whacked on a bit more um yeah, so no, that was good of Jake to come up. And like I said, I'm now at the dangerous stage. At least I can understand why um, things aren't working or troubleshoot, you know, if, if it's too cold, too hot, all the rest of it. And I worked out or was told like the limitations of my, my welder. It's only a small one. So that's pretty good. And for me, it's most, mostly going to be just bloody um, tacking up the ends of um, Damascus billets. So, Matt, speaking of Damascus billets, that integral knife that you did looked quite nice. And we've got no sound. Can you hear me? I can hear yeah, you now. Sorry, yeah. I had to, Actually, yeah, sorry, I was, uh, had to bail for a second there. 
So, guys, there's something else going on. Well, I was talking about the booboo I did on the knife. I didn't show you guys much, but that knife was actually finished on Friday, Cap. Yeah. That knife was completely finished. I'm happy with everything. Everything looks good. I'm holding the knife in my hand. I'm thinking like, oh man, maybe the end of the end of the handle should be a bit more curved. The knife is finished. I always show the guy the knife pictures like, hey man, your knife is finished. But something inside me said, ah, oh, go just round the end of the handle. So as I start grinding the end of the handle to round it, all of a sudden I start seeing something in the Gigi that doesn't look like a Gigi figure. Yeah, I reveal the tank hole. So I fucked up the completely finished knife. And just to make things worse, it's integral. It's already etched. Everything is done. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm thinking like, oh, maybe if I can do it, no, no, I fucked it up. I taped the blade well. I broke the handle. I showed the guy the picture saying, hey, I fucked up. I'm sorry. Which, which seems to be happening these days. And to make things worse, so it's already etched. If I was to put a block of handle on it and shape it while it etch is already done, the bolster is going to be ground off slightly. So even, even if I etch the knife again, the bolster's etch is not going to match the edge of the blade because blade has been etched seven, eight times along with the bolster. But since the bolster is ground off, it was going to look funky. I end up making a, I end up making a, Halo fit handle, like I made a handle on its own completely, finished it, checked it fit, making sure like it's half millimeter oversized, finished it, glued it and all that, finished it, sent the guy a picture saying, hey, look, you got another handle. But man, that was, uh, that was the first booboo. Another booboo was, it was 39 degrees yesterday. Ooh. It was 40, it was 39, 40 degrees in the valley. And the side, the wooden sheet I made, I... It started opening up because of the heat. So I had to make another one. <laughs> Thanks, Mother Nature. Thanks, Mother Nature. <laughs> and there's another word you can super just put in there for nature. Thanks, Mother Nature. Thanks, Mother. That sucks, man. Wow. I had I had a similar thing with a hunter that I did. I've, I've put together about four or five hunters that have been on the back burner for a little while, and they all turned out really nice. Had the same thing with the piece of Gigi, beautiful piece of Gigi. I did the final sanding, buffed it, and then held it up to have a look. And lo and behold, there's a flaw that you it was internal in the timber. There was no hint of it being on the exterior. And it's like a half moon. That's it's a micro crack. But it's been filled, it was filled with resin, so it's a half moon micro crack. And it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, nah. If if maybe if it was on the back end of the knife, I could have lived with it. But it's yeah. right, it's right on the side near the bolster, right where your thumb goes, and it stands out to me like dog balls. And it's a, I guess it's a lesson for some of those that are listening, um, in terms of, you know, what do you accept when when something's not quite right, like yeah. burls, burls, and all that sort of stuff that have natural flaws. You can probably get away with you know, filling it with glue and resin and whatever else like that. But this was a stunning piece of Ringigi with a half moon micro crack and it just stands out. So that that handle is going to go and get stuck in the press and smashed off. And then I'll dig through the Gigi pile and 
hope for the best that there's no internal flaws in the next piece. <laughs> oh, such with a... me at least, with me at least, because I'm using the bronze guards, I can just whack another block on and then take off, you know, a percentage of a millimeter and redo the guard. But I can imagine the stress of doing that with an integral, especially an integral Damascus blade, um, yeah. would would not be fun. Yeah, Ian, Ian Ronald's come on down there saying super glue and sawdust. Yeah, it, it works for certain timbers, mate, but not not on certain stuff. Like, yeah. You go and watch Nick Wheeler's stuff, tutorials on making the best high-end knives and watch him smash off a handle. Like, you know, yeah. if, if, if that's what it takes to be the best, we'll do it. Uh, if yeah. you don't want to be the best, then then, then don't. I mean, by all means, there's a there's a, certainly a market for for cheaper materials, cheaper stuff. But I'm just saying, like, if you want to be the best and you want your name to be recognised as the best, then that's that's what it takes. If you don't want to do that, no, don't. Exactly. I, I cannot I cannot justify sending that out like that. You know, it's I cannot justify that. Oh, what are these? What is it? Little sneak peek. These are the, so on, the front and back. On, on screen, for those that uh, are listening to this as a podcast, the Knife Art Association and Everly Works up in Sydney are uh, joining hands for the weekend of the 4th and 5th, I believe it is, uh, on the 4th, sorry, isn't it, uh, of December, and we're having a hammer in, and it's uh, to raise some money um, to put in the Knife Art Association's coffer for when we finally get to start doing knife shows again. It's a hands-on event and it will have people such as Corin and Keith Flutter and uh, Dimitri's going to be there, I believe. Who else have we got on the lineup? A few other people, a few other names there to guide people through and do demos and hands-on. Yeah, hands-on. Yeah, so it's going to be hands-on. And the details for that can be found online under the Knife Art Association, uh, Gamaco pages, the uh, our Knife Making Down Under page. Um, and what is it, Corrin? 100 bucks for a day out. And that's all inclusive of everything. Food as well. Should be a good day. Unfortunately, I already have a course booked at my workshop, um, so I'm not able to make it up, which is a real bummer because I, I'm hanging to get out and catch up and have a bit of fun with people. What a cool experience to have. Yeah. Just before well, the, the only way to get the shirts to be there, Kev, so. Uh, yeah, unless you're the president of the Knife Art Association and you talk to the fucking uh, paid employee uh, and slip him, slip, him a, slip him a little pay bonus on the side. <laughs> yeah, Gam Gamaco uh, have a deal going. Now, any not-for-profit hammering run in the country, if you want shirts for it, we'll sponsor you shirts and you can sell them for the event and make money for your not-for-profit association or you can give them to your members to do whatever. And I believe the KA, as this is a fundraiser, I think we'll be selling the shirts. And, um, uh, yeah, it'll be a it'll be a good thing. Um, it's it's a pretty cool the, shirt. As Kev said, it's just we're paying an employee at the moment and um, obviously without the income from shows, it's it's a tough time. So we just need to, uh, we just need to raise a bit of capital and, and this is what we're doing. So jump in. Yeah. 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 Plus it's, plus it's going to be fun. For the for the money, for a hundred bucks to go there and know that you're going to have an awesome day, get your hands dirty, have a feed and just catch up with everyone else that uh, was it limited to 
50 places. Yeah, yeah, that's so, half uh, sold out. Yeah, and it's, well, it's more than half sold out. So um, it's limited to 50 places. There's like another three weeks to go. Um, and yeah, like if, you, if you're interested, if you're in the area and you can travel there, get out and just engage with people. It's been so long since we've been able to do that. Uh, yeah, that's that's what I'd be going for. I'd be going because it's it's just good fun. Right, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And the so, t-shirts, yeah, look, and the t-shirts look cool. They do. I've got a question here from Stephen Eads. He's asking bronze guards. Kev, are you buying bronze flat bar or finding scrap? Uh, I buy I bronze flat bar when I can get bronze flat bar. I don't like using scraps of brass bronze or copper because you can't tell what grade of material it is and therefore if you start to mill it or drill it you're likely to run into trouble so i i found a supplier a long while ago and i bought up a big bunch of bar stock and that supplier no longer has anything so it's unfortunate that what i've got is what i've got um yeah. is that flat bar kid it's flat bar, yeah. Yeah, so if I can chime in there, we've been searching for a supplier of bronze flat bar for a very long time. Um, very hard to find anything over eight thick and, uh, in fact, impossible because I haven't been able to buy it. Um, and not only that, it's about matching your grades. So the bronze spacer material and the bronze, um, the bronze bar stock has to be the same grade, all right, or, or at least the same colour. Uh, yeah. And so there's different types of it. You've got PB1, PB2, L, LG, um, and LG grade. And actually, the best match you're going to find, and Mert might have put me on for this, actually, at Perth Knife Show, the best match you're going to find for the standard bronze spacer material is a product called leaded gunmetal, and it's sold as bronze round bar, LG2 or LG1, I think it is. But yeah. um, it's, um, it's excellent. It's the same colour. It's a type of bronze. Um and it, it works really well, machines well, and it's good. Mm. Yeah, so but, if you if you come across any, uh, like as in a supplier, if you ever find any, let Corrin know <laughs> so we can get it in. Yeah. Um, I'll just brass, buy it. Brass and bronze, very similar. The reason I went to bronze was, um, I guess, influenced from some of the American guys that I, I you know, talk with and have been around and they don't like brass so much because of the way it patinas. Bronze patinas are slightly cleaner or slightly nicer, age is better. Brass can just patina quite a funky yellow at times. But even then, uh, there's some, you know, if you keep it clean, uh, you know, bronze is, uh, sorry, brass is still nice. Brass, you get the opportunity when you have the machine grade brass like I was just saying, much thicker stock. Like I've got a bar of the the bra, uh, brass at home that's like 19 wide and 13 thick, which is absolutely perfect for my small hunters. Yeah, the thicker thing. But I think my other, my bronze is like five eighths or something. It's nine, eight or nine mil thick, which is right on the cusp of, like I can work it so it looks good, but it's right on the yeah. cusp. I'd rather it if it was a little bit thicker, but I'm just working with what I've got. We do we do bronze in round bar, and you can uh, there's numerous ways you can work round bar to get uh, make guards out of it. It's yeah. not as easy as it would be as, as if it was flat bar, but 
we got a couple of sizes there in bronze round bar, so yeah, it's certainly yeah. It's, not, it's not hard to get round bar, but yeah, yeah. So sorry, Steve. If I had a if I had a way of getting it or a, a vendor in line, I'd be definitely telling you about it, but I unfortunately don't. I've got I look at my my dwindling stock, and I'm like, shit. What do I do when that goes? And I'll probably go to the round bar and just work that a little bit. Well, the time will come when we cast it. I think is it. We just we should just bite the bullet, work out what alloy we want, and um, and do a casting run where we get a centrifuge. Because the problem with bronze is you don't just cast the bar; you centrifugally cast the bar. So it's yeah, done right. in a machine that spins it to get the porosity out. It's very hard to cast bronze without porosity for, yeah. for the application we have. So we can do it, but it's just it's just so fucking expensive. And if you do small runs, if you do a big run, it's not so bad. But yeah. the minute you go into the big, into uh, into small run stuff, it's it's not worth it. And I like I like that um, bronze because I'd make, I guess when you look at the style of knives I make, I make the old school style of knives, hidden tang, brass or bronze guard, and then a wooden handle. I don't do a lot of stainless. Uh, I've got some really nice. Um, Wrought iron that I'll be putting onto a couple of guards on the next few nights too, which should be pretty good. But that's a bit of a peak to machine. <laughs> it's just uh. hidden tang is probably the best, the best um, sort of uh, construction to use rounds. So to use round bars, yeah, like the, yeah absolutely. Like the yeah. And like I said, when you do that, you don't have to worry about bloody uh, matching pin stock inside of it as well. Yeah, it's it's not the length, it's the girth. <laughs> so See, Kev, if, are you gonna use Kev, are you gonna use the uh, wrought iron with what kind of blade material? Uh a, a low layer Damascus. Okay. So, so carbon still low layered. With the wrought iron, I recommend you getting the part to the final size and etch it or heat blue it and etch it before you put it on. If you just put it like untreated, it just doesn't eat rust, patinas like ugly way. Yeah. So I recommend you, you etch it before you install it on the guard. Yeah. I'll be taking that advice on board. It's really nice. I got it off Carlos the Silver, just a couple of pieces. It's really thick and man, the grain in it, the grain structure in this rod is amazing. You'd, you'd be loving it, <laughs> but you're not getting it. <laughs> <laughs> It's safe to say I got myself some few bars of wrought iron lately, so I should be good for now. Thank you, Doctor. Yeah. The other stuff I got a while ago, actually just before, oh, might have even been last year, was some stuff off um, Big John from uh, New Zealand. Yes. John Worthington. And it was the over in the New Zealand they were using it as fence, fence posts. And, right. and that's, yeah, I heard about that. that Oh, yeah, that stuff is nice too. But I've actually made a couple – haven't made knives from them yet, but I've actually done a couple of forge-welded billets with the wrought iron and the 52100. And I'm working out – I'll probably just do – based on some advice I got off Nerd, I'll probably just do like a virtually stock-remove hunter out of it to see how it goes first. Yeah. And then once I'm confident that my heating, forging heats and all that sort of stuff with the wrought – Sad my I'll, I'll start smashing some other stuff out. Yeah, the issue with the road to 5200 is 
52-100 doesn't like to be overheated mm. and road you really need to work hot yes so the ends start crumbling if you're in the low temperatures it's a but heat treat works out fine yeah yeah nice so what else uh what else has been on the cards we've got we've got about 25 minutes or so before we get um bob kramer on board um probably good time to, to i can just check this time in washington state if you like probably not a bad idea just so we don't get it wrong okay <laughs> I, I... <laughs> probably anyway. a good time probably a good time for our listeners uh to have a think about uh, any questions they'd like to ask bob uh obviously us presenters we've we've i've got a, a list of questions here and um, we'll probably run through some of our usual questions that we ask people about how they get into knife making and stuff. But if you have anything that you would particularly like to ask of Bob Kramer, have a think about it. Don't put it up now because it's going to get lost in the comments on the side of our screens here. But um, yeah, ha have a think about that and we'll, we'll run through some of the listeners' questions and post them up for Bob to have a think about. So guys, speaking of my last week, I kind of undersold it. I forgot that I had my birthday last week and my wife uh, did a surprise and she took me out for a surprise event that I had no idea. Her and a couple, uh, a friend of ours, they took me to a little glassworking session in Sydney. And yes, uh, the, the guy's name is Mark. Oh, he also knows you, Courtney. He, he told me to tell you hi. I got his all Instagram details. And this was in, this was someplace in near Everly. Yeah, I know him. Yeah. Yeah, he yeah, does so, beautiful um, borosilicate glass work. Exactly. And it was a surprise. I got there and surprise because I want to do glass work for a long time. And I'm thinking like, as knife makers, we have a lot of the stuff that to be able to work with the glass, but not knowing the intricacies and small details. It was good to see how you can manipulate like rods of glass into tiny beads and things and how you how you can actually stick glass to the other one and pull it and stretch it it was really cool we made a, we made some objects i end up making a small seahorse and little christmas tree ornament nice yeah well I'll take a step I'll backwards from that happy freaking so, birthday mate thanks yeah. buddy so show us what yeah. you made. Put it up. Can you put up what you made? Yeah. Have you got you like better have it with you. Uh, I don't have it on Instagram yet. I don't have it on Instagram yet. I have them. If you give me a second, I can send you the pictures, though. If it's the guy I'm thinking of, he does um, stop motion, um, stop motion films in glass instead oh, of Play-Doh. So if you, is that the guy? <laughs> it, is, it is the guy. Yeah, I reckon. Yeah, right. He's, I'm trying to remember his bloody name. Sorry, it's. <clears throat> His name was Mark. Yeah, thanks, dude. Yeah. Now I'll try. What's his Instagram? Uh, hang on. Where is it? Where is it? That's pretty cool. We've got the um, we've got the glassworks down here in um, Canberra as well, which used to be the uh, part of the old power station here um, in the artsy Mark, part of town. Mark Elliot Glass. Elliot, yep, that's it. Good. Yeah, Mark, Mark Elliot. Elliot plus. Yeah. With one L, two T's. And okay. I'll so, show you the pictures if I can. 
Uh, one second. Um, I'll save the pictures and send it to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Mark, yeah, Mark Elliott did a um, did a piece, and I don't know if it's available on YouTube. I'm just just looking for it now, which was like a whole story, undersea story in stop motion glass, where he just heats up each piece and moves it for every fr every frame. It was done wow. probably well, probably near on ten years ago, and it's um it's epic, Little Mermaids <clears throat> and submarines and things. Um, so, uh, molten magic in storytelling. Flamework speaks about. Yeah. I'll send over. I don't know how to. I'll send over WhatsApp. I don't know how to send it over the. Uh, over the thing. That's cool. So, um, from the look of it, uh, and the Julie Ann's just said happy birthday, Mert. All the best people had birthdays last week. I would be assuming from a conversation, a comment like that, that perhaps Julianne had a birth birthday last week too, because I didn't. <laughs> so if that's the case, happy birthday, Julianne. Being a gentleman, we're not going to ask how old you are. We can hit that up with Mert. How many turns yeah. around the sun for you, Mert? Thirty-nine. 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 Nice. Yeah. So guys, I have to let my puppy in. Yeah, this is um, Carnage Creations, and he talks about uh, <clears throat> want to learn glassworking. You have some sculptural ideas to combine forged steel, paper <coughs> knees, sorry, and glass pieces. <coughs> so I actually have one here, which is um, I mean, it's just a simple glass marble. Um, I bought this at a charity auction down in South Australia. It's made by um, it was made by um, John from. Northern Springworks. Uh, That's pretty cool. Anyway, never mind. Yeah. That's like a fire poker with a large marble in the end of it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So, so I want to give a shout-out. While we're, while we're talking about glass and glassworks and stuff, I want to give a shout-out to another maker that you really need to go and have a look at if you're interested in glassworks, and it is Annette Blair Glass. So a double -N, n e double -T, t e B-L-A-I-R glass, all one word. Annette Blair glass. If you want to, on Instagram, if you want to be blown away by what glass can be shaped into, you need to go and check Annette's gear. And then if you scroll down, go and have a look at her Instagram. You scroll down, she's created a set of stuff that was, um, it's it's hammers, it's paint tins, it's paintbrushes. They're everything on them is made out of glass, and it's just it blows you away what these other artists out there doing this really cool stuff is. Yeah, we get kind of caught up sometimes, I think, just in that knife making world, and we see you know knives, maybe some hammers, and maybe some tongs, and some other stuff. Um, and then you sometimes forget about that other course of artisan that's out there, and the glass work yeah. is uh, just unbelievable when you see someone that knows what they're doing. And I was saying in Canberra, we've got the glassworks um, at the old power station here. And um, I'm going to do similar to Mert. I'm going to go out and actually there's a course we can do here. Let's go out and you make your own whiskey glass, which I think will be appropriate for our podcast. So I'm going to sign up to that. Yeah. I was going to be doing it earlier this year, obviously, then COVID shut everything down. So 
it's just hoping the best now that things stay open and we can get out and do um, some different pieces. But yeah, it's amazing so, when we see. I've got a question here from uh, from Lee Cantwell, and he's saying, "I want some white handle pins. Can we get G10 rods in, or my Carter rods in white?" Dude, just uh, give um, Cole a con contact <coughs> Cole. You'd be surprised what he has in samples and offcuts and and product samples and things. So he'd probably be able to help you out. Um, we've tried to get G. We've got obviously got my Carter rods, um, and I don't know if we have it in white. So definitely, if it's not on our website, just talk to Cole because he's got stacks of samples and stuff there and uh, stuff we might be buying if there's enough demand and yeah just have a chat to him so good as gold hey look at that brazilian bloodwood oh nice yeah i want to make a box oh yeah okay the things you find on my desk anyway <laughs> yeah um, when, when i've come to visit and popped up to your office it's funny sometimes the stuff that's sitting on there you can get lost <laughs> So, like you said, all the stuff that passes your desk. You know, <coughs> yeah, yeah. I've got, I had two hot cuts here this morning. We're going to go back into hot cuts. We just ordered 100. So. Nice. Anyway, there we go. Very good. And um, what else is news? What's the time? 10.42. 15 minutes. Cool. Yeah, almost there. Yeah. So, uh, main thing is come to the hammering if you're in Sydney. Knife Art Association. Yeah, sure. You find that. By googling knife heart association 2020 hammering it's a great way to finish um there's always the we run the risk that uh, we'll all go into lockdown but we got through with the symposium we hope to get through with this one um the venue is good for about 300 people if you're worried about social distancing um being the biggest blacksmith shop you're probably ever going to see ever in your life and um i will be doing a doing a piece a hands-on piece on how to make ferals so how to form oh, yeah. material and um, and make ferrules for barrel knives, basically. Yeah. Which you could probably transform that knowledge into other knives that aren't barrel knives. <laughs> yeah. Look, anytime you want to make a, a fitting for a sheath, for example, so you want to make a like a, oh, yeah. a silver end cap or something like that. And I'll talk about soldering. You know, yeah. yeah, I've been probably. up at your place and we've done partial parts of barrel knives so far, but I've seen you do that process. And I've got to, got to admit, for someone that is like a completely zero hands-on in terms of soldering that style of um, fitting, it's freaking amazing to watch. Like, it's unreal. And you are definitely bloody good at what you do because the one that Can you did... Can yeah, well, that's it. They, yeah, they can look good and they can also look pretty yeah. shit. But the one which I, well, you didn't know, you, we polished it up. I couldn't tell where the join line was. Yeah, and that's that's obviously the the end game. The <clears> end game. Yeah. So one one yeah. funny thing with the corn and barrel knives is, I think he must have like a, some kind of notification set on internet. Anytime there is a conversation about barrel knives on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, Corin gets notification and he's, he's right there. It's like a Michael <laughs> Bublé on a, on a Christmas songs. The second it gets December, Christmas, Michael Bublé jumps in. Same thing applies <laughs> with Corin and the barrel knives. <laughs> Maybe. I don't go on Instagram that much anymore, but I'm trying to get off the – I'm trying to get off all the social media and spend less time looking at my device. I'm getting consistent and ongoing headaches and the social media yeah. is – just well, too addictive. You, and you, you probably need... Like I get a fair amount of stress watching it too because 
you know, there's stuff on there that, um, you know, oh, I should be doing this or should fix that. And the stuff I can't change. Yeah. And it just well, drives me You're not going to make TikTok yeah. videos? I did for a little while. Okay. I just get distracted no. on TikTok by Never. pretty girl mm. dancing and you know? I don't do anything. Never. No. TikTok dance yeah. challenge accepted, Kev? No, I don't do TikTok. <laughs> I think TikTok's, TikTok's a joke. Um, I saw it. So um, Jamie might be at the Hammer Inn after 4 p.m., which would be nice to see Sausage Man up there. I saw a little flyby video, actually, of Everly Works um, that was taken recently, and the works they've done there, like I said, that levelling of the floor, that new floor and stuff, that is superb. I I didn't actually recognise it as Everly at first because it, it's so clean and so well presented and... You know, I'd like to get up there just to see that because we, when we were talking to Matty Mewburn about it last time, the scale of the the work involved in getting that material moved and that floor down, it just you know blows the mind. You know, like how how much went into that, and it really is now like that refreshes the new new old. You know, we've got the clean clean level floors and then all of that same equipment in there, and it just looks unreal. It's mad. It looks absolutely epic. And um, he's got like just, you know, heaps of grinders, heaps of anvils, heaps of old forges, old school stuff, gas forges. Um, we've basically got the run of the place. Uh, he's generously donated the venue for this event and it's simply to help us raise money. Yeah. Um, and uh, he's, uh, yeah, well, we've just got to cover our costs. So, like, just can't thank Matt enough for what he's doing. If anybody's interested in a course in blacksmithing or knife making, um, that's a big shout out to uh, Everly Works for uh, um, for that. They, like, it's just such a great venue, epic. Yeah, yeah. and Sausage um, Man was just saying it's so bright in there, which is I think the first part of why I didn't recognise it was Everly to begin with was it the change that's happened in there is unreal. Like. Yeah, I can't wait. Get up there. Get no, up it's going to be grand. It's going to be grand. I'm going to, yeah, I'll be teaching, yeah, like I say, I'll, I'll take up some some copper or something like that or some, yep. some bronze or nickel silver and people can have a go at making a ferrule or showing them how to go through the whole process. And if they're interested, I don't really care because I've got my oh. picture up to it now. So. <laughs> You suck. <laughs> yeah. So every time every time someone sees uh, a person wearing the hammer-in shirt with Curran's barrel knife on it, we'll have to make a new drinking game. Every time you see that shirt, you'll have to go and have a drink of something. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I had to... Oh, somebody had to pause our podcast to listen to us live. Look at that. <laughs> wow. That's that's a little bit surreal, actually. It's about to get good. We, um, yeah, we got about another 10 minutes until we have arguably the best chef knife maker in the world come on, Bob Kramer. God, excited about that. Yeah. I've been, I've been watching a few YouTubes this morning when I first got up. I'll tell you the... It, it's there's uh, for those who weren't listening had a loss in our family which was my old dog Murph and one of the sad follow-on sad reminders of that is our other dog Joey or Jojo 
um, is kind of lost without him because Murph, Murph was his thing. So we get the wake-up call now of the crying dog at the door at about 5 o'clock in the morning. And it's like, ugh. Don't want to tell him to piss off because it's pretty fresh still. But, um, yeah, so I was awake quite early this morning <coughs> on YouTube and just watching the Bob Kramer videos. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was good. He's, he's got a fucking awesome workshop. I, I haven't even... I've been busy. Yeah, mate. Can you pull out the last knife that he did with the feather? But oh, instead of yeah. like a being feather Damascus, there's actually, hang on, my, my horses. Is yeah, it on Instagram? It's, yes. Yeah, it's on his Instagram. Uh, it's actually like a canister Damascus. Somehow he's done this feather within another layer of Damascus. It looks on, it's a realistic looking feather. It looks unreal. Yeah. Yeah, that's also, he, ma he makes his he makes his own steel as well. Like he also makes his crucible wood steel. Sorry, guys. I wouldn't talk that way to your dog, mate. Honestly, no. Give your dog some respect, man. I'll rip your arm off. He will. Hey. <laughs> All right. I have to just quickly disappear for two seconds, and then I will be back myself. Uh, There we go. Really, really. Lost Kevin's son. Yeah. That one? Yep. Epic. Oh, if all of the stuff that he's doing is like crazy, inspirational stuff. And he's here. Oh, oh, look at that. There hey, he guys. is. Hey, Bob. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, all in all. Good. Good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Just yeah, let me just things around on the screen. Yeah. That's Mert's dog. He's saying hello. That's quite a regular occurrence on this show. Nobody's My going dog talking. to talking. Shut up. Uh, Have you seen his dog? His dog stands about about here. It's it's huge. Uh huh. Big, it's a K, it's a Turkish Kegel. I'll find a picture of one. Eagle, I think he says. He's a he's a Kangal. He's Turkish lifestyle Kangal. guardian dog, and he's about 28 to 30, 28, 29 centimeters on the shoulder. And when he stands up, he's probably more taller than six foot, six wow. foot five or something. It's a big dog. Wow, cool. Let me, as let a, me as a big bark. Yeah, never heard of it. Never heard of it. How do you spell? Uh, I'm gonna write it down. K-A-N-G-A-L. It's a you might have heard Anatolian Shepherd, but Anatolian Shepherd is like a doesn't refer to anything. It's like saying red wine. It doesn't it doesn't specify any region. Kangal is the name of the dog, uh, name of the breed. Yeah, that's a Kangal right there. Wow. Yes. He's a beast. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it's nice unless you're eating a steak and it's looking over your shoulder, and then it's just a little bit scary. <laughs> ah, that's awesome. 
that was my weekend in a nutshell. But anyway, let me get that off the screen. Here we go. Well, very pleased to meet you, Bob. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, you're uh, welcome. Thanks for the invite. I'm not too sure if you're aware who we are, uh, but we certainly are aware of who you are. And Mert, you, you'd know Mert, yeah? Yeah. And Kev? Yeah, you I'm back. Hey, Kev. Yeah. How are you? Good, good. I'm doing well. Thank you. And, yeah, I'm Corin, so there you go. And you're, um, all, you're all bladesmiths, right? Ah, well, that's a good question. <laughs> I am, Kev, Kev is certainly a bladesmith, and Mert is certainly a bladesmith, and I'm known for being the most published knife maker in Australia who makes the fewest amount of knives. Good job. You're uh, good at Photoshop. Uh, well, actually, no, I have a secret, and his name's Sharp by Coop. Yeah. So... <laughs> Um, I get mine done by Jim Cooper, but yeah, I make um, I make barrel knives, which you may or may not be familiar with. No, Do you know what a barrel knife is? No. Yeah, yeah. So, we'll educate you by the time this ends. You'll, okay. you'll know what a barrel knife I'm, is. A common discussion I have, but yeah, I was in. If you look at, do you get Blade Magazine? No, no. July July edition, last page. <laughs> no, oh, never mind. <laughs> but never mind. Um, yeah, so uh, I, yeah, they're a type of uh, a type of folding knives. Kev, help me out here, save me. Do you want me to put a picture up? Here, no, hang on, one moment. This is yeah, this is barrel a barrel knife. knife. Okay. So the barrel knife, uh, this one's not as nice as Corrin's, but you pull out the internal and then pop open your blade, and then that all slides back together with a nice little cool. click. And then you have this. So Kyron could probably give you a quick rundown on the origins of them, but they're, they're Swedish sort of style of knife. Yeah, there's there's one of Kyron's. Kyron's is absolutely beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, stunning stuff. Like, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, I'll send you some pictures later. It's uh, it's something that probably people are probably sick of me talking about on the podcast. <laughs> it's, it's pretty much all I do. So, um, so. Anyway, so, Bob, we had this thing going uh, when we have our, what we refer to as a pubcast of a Thursday evening, our time. Uh, we had a little drinking game going that whenever we mentioned certain things, one of them being a barrel knife, the guests that were <laughs> drinking along with us had to, had to have a little bit of a drink. And we had to stop talking about barrel knives because everyone was getting drunk and passing out <laughs> on the podcast. Uh, sounds good. That's a good game. Is that the only thing you drink to is barrel knife? Oh, uh, no. no. <laughs> if I say semi, they take a shot. <laughs> when I say blade show, they take a shot. <laughs> the problem was we, we played along with them for about three weeks and we called them the podcast. Oh. And they start really well, but geez, they end messy. <laughs> <laughs> I still and, have to uh, drive home after this, too. Yeah, yeah oh, really? okay. Oh, oh, you're safe. Yeah. yeah. We, we, we would it's 10 o'clock. So, yeah. We would wake up on the Friday morning very, very fuzzy and and wonder what truck ran over us the night before it was <laughs> so we, we had to scale we had to scale it back just a little bit <laughs> what are you guys drinking i uh, coffee this morning it's only it's yeah, only whiskey right? whiskey <laughs> normally but if we didn't whiskey. have you here it'd be whiskey yeah All right. yes so i'm the only one drinking tonight <laughs> yes <laughs> well we have a few we have, we have a few listeners uh tuned in from the us at the moment as well so they might they might be at that time of the day where they're having a after work drink as well. Okay. 
Sounds good. So uh, yes. you're in the office today. Um, uh, still in the office in uh, in Washington State. That's where you live. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a um, couple minutes before four p.m. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We we know that well because um, because. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll, I'll take oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I stuffed it up. As you know, a couple of weeks ago, I stuffed it up. But also, I didn't take into account you guys had the time change. Oh, yeah. 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 That's okay. That's not a problem. It's okay for you. We can hear for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> we were just getting warmed up, right? Yeah. It's, it's, how, it's how we get our listeners on board. We tell them that we've got like arguably the world's best chef knife maker coming on the show and they, they all tune in and then we we tell them okay now you have to listen to us for an hour <laughs> <laughs> well did you get do you think you're going to get more people this week because you postponed it a week or are you going to get less people because they're like fuck these guys they don't have it. <laughs> most you of them say that each week regardless <laughs> yeah we we get um yeah, we, we get some pretty pretty decent numbers, but typically they watch during. Uh, we get about anywhere up to about 150 during a live live stream. But that we do them at night, late in the evening when people can watch. So everyone's at work today, so uh, we'll 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 probably be lucky to hit 40. But tonight and over coming weeks, they'll all watch it and um, uh, and they'll listen to it when we put it up on the, as a podcast as well. And to, yeah, we get some pretty decent numbers, I think, for a podcast anyway. So yeah, I'm not not unhappy with it. So what yeah. what inspired you guys to do a podcast at the beginning? Well, that's a great question, and we're here to interview you. But let's just answer that one, uh, Kev. Actually, what was the reason? <laughs> well, we thought about it for a little while. There was there was a lot of content going out, a lot of YouTube content and stuff going out um, for knife making and whatnot. There was nothing that was really Australian. And hmm. um, so a couple of us had bumped heads a few times and I think we'd all thought about it individually, but then looked at the logistics of doing as an individual person, um, you know, keeping the content enthusiasm, enthusiasm running. Um, and then the three of us sort of just talked about at one stage, realised that we all had that common sort of wish of doing a podcast um, and, and we all get along famously We've all known each other for a while. We travelled the show circuit in Australia. We know a lot of makers both at home and around the world collectively. So it just gave us that opportunity. And initially we started it, Bob, um, doing it as a daytime podcast recording that wasn't live. And with all of the COVID stuff that occurred, um, we decided to put our little theme on it, which was the pubcast. So at night we'd have a few drinks and just break the, I guess, break the monotony a little bit for people because everyone was locked down and, you know, not able to travel to shows and everything like that. So we thought we'd just start this Thursday night drink session where we also talked about knives and got people on. And it's just, it, it's actually just sort of grown from there. And cool. I, I enjoy it and these guys enjoy it. And I think our listeners enjoy it. Uh, it could get pretty. It could get pretty messy, though. I have to say, we, we yeah. call it in, informal. It's informal. It's you know all those podcasts you listen to that are all very well produced and they're very well Chris. done. That's that's not us, Bob. We're not that. No. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but honestly, we were trying to achieve. 
We were trying to achieve, like, as if you go to a knife show, after the knife show is over, you go sit down in the bar, yeah. talk with your friends, like, very yeah. informal. You kick the shit, and you make fun of things and knife content, but we didn't want to have, like, a very very serious podcast. Like, oh, this week we're going to talk about this, grinds on this. Like, we just want to talk, like, the way we talk after a knife show. That was the whole idea. It's a great idea. Yeah. 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 Well, I don't know if it's a great idea, but we certainly enjoy it. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's fun. The whole the whole premise of us doing this was as long as it stays something fun to do, we'll continue doing it. So it's, it. it's all about keeping it lighthearted. I'm just trying to be nice at the beginning because after I have a pint or two, that may all. <laughs> so if I oh, can get nice things in on the top. I, I can tell you now, if I didn't have things that I really needed to get done. After this podcast, I'd have a few day drinks with you. I can guarantee you. All right, next time. Yeah. <laughs> Got to pick up the kids. Otherwise, otherwise, I'll be doing some day drinking too. I, I can imagine the looks I will get. Oh yeah, as you go, rock, rock up to pick up the kids in an Uber after school. I already get the looks like because I'm going with the nice shirt, or sometimes I'm going. My hands are dirty. And my kids are in a private school. I'm already getting like the how come this homeless looking guy is bringing the kids to the private school. Like, is who's this creepy looking dude? Or sometimes, sometimes a teacher think I'm a weapons weapons smuggler because I got knives in my shirt. So I'm getting enough yeah. looks as is. If I go like half drunk, they'll be calling child protective services. I'm sure. Just don't go. Just give the Uber driver the photographs of your kids and have them. I've experienced that before that's words of wisdom right there <laughs> <laughs> i don't have kids so i oh, right. the rules are very different I've, I've had the similar experience to mert i've got a my son reached the milestone i've only got i've only got the one child my son um and he officially had his last day of what you guys call high school uh yesterday they're in exam periods now for about two weeks and then his next year he's off to university so We've made that goal, but I had the exact same experience as Mert. The times that I needed to go to the school for some administrative thing, I was like out of the workshop, covered in muck, wearing a holy knife shirt, uh, going into the front office of, you know, a reasonably nice private school. <laughs> but the other thing is they appreciate when you go in and you, you're just nice and polite. And it's like I look at it and I say, I don't care how I look because I'm still paying the same fees as everyone else. My my wife's sick of me wearing shirts that have huge, you know, um, Kevin Cashin swords or or or, or um, Sofredo Sofredo keyholes and stuff to kids' birthday parties. She's yeah. like, all the parents are all the parents are scared of you some sort of murder. I've said, no, no. There's always that ten percent that will talk to me. Exactly. That's where you get the conversation started. G'day, mate. Oh, you're into knives. Yep, I'm into knives too. And there you go. I found my friend. I don't care about the others. I just <laughs> want the ones. That... Right. <laughs> yeah. Self-selecting group. Yes. Yeah. We're the ones that at parties will be next to the person's dog talking to the person that likes knives. Mm-hmm. That's it. <laughs> That's it. That's exactly it. Anyway, so we've taken you've taken the time out of your day for us, and we really appreciate that. Yeah, so absolutely. We'll get... We'll get into the meat of it. Um, we're going to start off with just a little bit about about sort of how it all began, like where you grew up, um, the area, because most people aren't familiar with America, so you can give us a bit of a, is it rural or whatever, and then, um, yeah, how 
your first knife, the first time you held a knife, your first time you un- sort of got into it from that perspective. Yeah. So, so I, I grew up um, in the suburbs outside of Detroit, Michigan. So Michigan is the state that looks like a hand. If you look on the map of the U.S., it's sort of in the center and near near Canada. <clears throat> um, and Detroit is known for building cars. So the Motor City, you know, Stevie Wonder and the Temptations yep. and all those guys. Um, and it so it wasn't rural. You know, I mean, I lived in the suburbs. And, and probably the first knife that I remember that had an impression on me was a um, – it was a hunting knife, the German hunting knife with a stacked leather handle that was yeah. in the basement. So my dad had this workbench, but it was just, it was a shit show. Everything was piled on top of the workbench. And this knife was in amongst all this, all these kind of loose tools. And I used to go down and pick it up and just was kind of fascinated by it. But I, but I can't say that I was... Um, you know, that, that, that there was some sort of resonance that said, oh, this is my future. I'm going to go down this path. I was just fascinated because, you know, you're a young boy and there's a knife and you want to cut something with it. It wasn't sharp. And we had a, a really shitty uh, whetstone that had completely glazed up. So it was slightly dished and it was completely glazed. I don't know what kind of oil my father or his grandfather I think it was uh, uh, his grandfather's stone. It wasn't big. It was about this big and like so, but you couldn't sharpen anything on it. And I didn't know anything about any of it. And so I was fascinated by it, Um, but soon just sort of gave up on the whole thing because I was clueless. And, um, and you couldn't, like, where I lived, you, you couldn't wear a knife. You couldn't wear a knife to school. Um, I had friends that would go hunting. My dad used to – there were six kids in my family. I'm the last. And so my father used to be into hunting and fishing and stuff um, when my older brothers and sisters were young. And then as he got six kids and they got really busy – um, you know, just trying to keep the household together and make a living. He didn't have time. He wasn't really interested. And like my brother was an Eagle Scout and a Sea Scout. And by the time I came, my brother was the second oldest. By the time I came around, they were just wiped out. My parents were just <laughs> right. They're like, fuck it. We're not going to any Scout meetings. And here's a bike. Go, go out, have fun. So, um, I'm trying to think where I went from there. Yeah, so, so I wasn't submerged in any way in the knife culture or the hunting culture. Um, yeah. Yeah, nice. Yeah. I, I had a similar thing. I was, I was the youngest of five, and it was the same sort of thing. I looked back at photos of my dad when he was, I guess, a younger man, and, you know, he did the hunting. They used to go crabbing, and he had these photos of these absolutely monstrous mud crabs we get in australia and all of that and by the time that you got around to me it was exactly the same thing here's a bike see you later (laughs) and that was it just have fun just don't get hurt and uh, we'll see you at bedtime 
Yeah, home, be home for dinner. <laughs> nice. So in some of the stuff, you know, you've, you've got a lot of, um, I guess, videos and stuff out there which tell us a little bit about your background and stuff. Um, you, in particular, the one which I guess resonates with a lot of people is the video you had with Anthony Bourdain when they were when he was travelling around looking for the makers. Um, and one of the things which we saw in that was um, that you started out by looking at sharpening, how to sharpen knives. So your base, I guess, in all of this was not necessarily the knife, but how the knife performed. Yeah, I mean, uh, just to give you a little bit more background, when um, when I went to school, I was lucky enough in middle school that I had woodshop. So I, I had an hour every day in the woodshop, and, and that made a lot of sense to me. Um, what none of my teachers knew and, and I didn't know and my parents didn't know is that I was that I am dyslexic. And so school was a little bit of a challenge. So I have, a, I have the capacity to learn and I'm quite curious, but I don't read very well and I can't write very well. It's, it's definitely gotten better throughout my life. So that, you know, I've, I've strengthened those um, skills, but it's really good to know um, that you have this deficit and then you could approach learning differently. But those things don't show up in woodshop. So woodshop's pretty easy. You know, you, you measure, you make a mark, you make a cut, and you've got something tangible. Whereas... Hey, hey hear that? Stop, stop, stop. Hear that, Mert? Hear that? Woodshop is pretty easy, Mert. Sorry, we've just been hearing about how Mert put some doors on the cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah, that's just making so fun of my skills to fix things, which I have none. I can make nice, but I cannot put two nails parallel. <laughs> I, I suck at it. I, I said from the get-go, my wife says, can you fix this? I'm like, no. I can't. Do you want me to? <laughs> Do you really want me to? Yeah. <laughs> How much anyway, do you how much time and money do you have? I can fix it. It might take six months, but yeah. Yeah. Measure twice, cut three times. Done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so for me, it was uh, I didn't learn until in high school. I got woodshop too. So I just got this long, uh, continuous emergence emergence in in uh, kinesthetic learning. So yeah. I to gravitate towards, I loved riding my bike, I was a good swimmer, anything athletic or anything kinesthetic, like juggling or riding the unicycle, anything athletic felt right to me. It felt like I'm comfortable here, I'm home here. And um, so then when I went to college, because you got to go to college, right? That was the deal. My folks said, you know, now after I barely got out of high school and they're like, what, so what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I think I want to be a woodworker. I think I, I maybe make furniture would be cool. And they're like, it's not a good idea. You need to go to school and become an accountant or a lawyer or something like that. And I, I absolutely dreaded the idea that I knew it was going to be miserable. And it, it was not very satisfying at all. Um, and then I real I, one of my professors you know, my first term paper, she said, come see me in the office. And she said, have you ever been tested for learning disabilities, blah, blah, blah. She essentially said, you're dyslexic. And so then everything made sense. It was like, oh, no wonder 
that went that way. And so I left college and traveled across the U.S., made my way to Seattle and um, got a job in a hotel and restaurant. Because once you learn to cook or wait tables, you can go anywhere. It's pretty much the same thing. So I loved that I had this sort of gypsy lifestyle. And so I was working at the Four Seasons in Seattle and I had to buy a set of knives and eventually they got dull. And I was working with these great cooks. I mean, these guys were super talented. Some had been through culinary school, some had just worked their way up. And nobody knew how to sharpen their knives, which was just weird. It was just bizarre to me, but, um, and so that's when I dug into the sharpening. That's when I thought, I can, I can learn this. I mean, I've taken tougher stuff in college. How hard can it be? And so I began to dig into that topic. Yeah. You know, it hasn't changed, Bob. You know, the people in the professional kitchens, 95% still don't know how to sharpen knives. I was a chef. I was a, uh, I was a chef till I uh, quit cooking three years ago. Yeah. And it's, it's horrible. You see people coming in and first thing as a chef, I will look at their knives. If their tips of the knives are broken, like that teaches you, that tells you about yeah. the cleaning habits, about the habits of how they're going to maintain their tools. Right. Right. Yeah. Although I have to say it's way better today than it was in oh, 1980. Yeah. I mean, there's so much more information out there and great stones and um, the knives in general are better. And there's, a, you know, this culture, I mean, what you guys are doing are, is helping to foster and spread information. Yeah, absolutely. Do you remember the first knife that you, you bought the first, uh, I'm sorry, the first knife that you ever made, how did you came from the point? Like I want to sharpen knife. So actually, I can make a knife from scratch. So um, it took me, once I dug into sharpening, and, and it actually took me quite a while to figure it out. So there was no place to go and buy a good sharpening stone. Um, I ended up traveling all over the United States. So there was a, an airlines called Eastern Airlines, and you could, for $700, you could go to six different cities. So you fly to a city, stop, stay over for whatever length of time you wanted, and then hop back on the plane and go to another city. And so I popped my way across the United States and went to all the big cities. And when I would get to the hotel, I'd look in the yellow pages and I'd go to all the sharpening shops. And go to the sharpening shop and say, hey, can I see your sharpening room? Would you guys teach me? And they would all go, no, we don't, you know, nobody <laughs> back there. You can't get in there. Um, and so then I'd ask to see the work. And a lot of times the work was just absolute shit. I mean, huge scratches on the side of the knives. They just put them on a wet wheel and then quickly licked them on a stone. But like the profiles were not good. The tapers were not good. The finish was not good. And then I got to San Francisco, and there were three amazing cutlery stores. I mean, really old-world craftsmanship, beautiful tapers, beautiful finish, um, and, uh, and, and they let me back. I talked to Peter. Peter was like 72 years old, and he had this uh, leather belt, overhead drive, big water wheels, and about six different setup wheels with different abrasives on the wheel. And he took a knife that was dull and he moved it through the system and it took him maybe eight minutes, seven minutes to do the whole thing. It was perfect. So being a kinesthetic learner, I just, you know, you, you, you learn to, you learn visually. 
because you've had to throughout the years. You know you couldn't read the book or whatever, and so you just learn. And so I just repeated what Peter had done in a pickup truck, in a in a in an old bread truck. And then it took once I had all the machines set up. It took me maybe another year to get good at it, to actually learn to control the tapers and so forth. So Mert, this is a long answer to your question, but um, I sharpened knives for like five years. And so I would drive to the different restaurants. I had a generator in my truck. And, you know, I'd go in and scoop up the knives and drop off loaners and then do, you know, each restaurant might be somewhere between 10 and 100 knives. So I yeah. did that eight hours a day. And then I would cook at nighttime or wait tables. Wow. I had two jobs for a long time. And I started to get – Seattle got really, really popular um, – and the traffic started to get really bad. So I'm driving this big 30-foot truck through stop-and-go traffic, and I, I, I lost interest. I'm, I'm interested in problem-solving and technical challenges. And once I had learned to sharpen the knives and I got good at it and I had all these clients, it, it was boring. All I was doing was grinding and sharpening knives and making money, and I was not being tested at all. So... I picked up a Blade magazine. Uh, Corey, uh, you asked me about Blade, but I was picking up a Blade magazine one day at lunch. And so I'm sitting in the truck eating my sandwich and reading Blade magazine. And at the back of Blade, there was a little ad for the American Bladesmith Society School in Hope, Arkansas. So I just decided to go. And that's when I, you know, I did the two-week course and I came home changed. I just knew... Somehow I'm going to make knives. It's going to be at night. It's going to be on the weekend. It'll be in the garage. But I'm going to do this for the rest of my life because, you know, as a cook, you can spend two or three days preparing a banquet. You know, you start with roasting the bones, making the stock, reducing it to sauce, preparing all the rest of it. Banquet day, you plate the stuff up. The food goes out. 45 minutes later, all that work is gone. Gone. And so you get to start over again. And, and that's, I mean, there's, that's rewarding. There's nothing wrong with that. But for me, I could take three days and make a knife. Even if it was crude, I still got this cool little tool that is not going away. Mm. Yeah. So, so that that's... was transformation point, And I just went, I'm doing this somehow. Cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've all been there. The journey's just a little bit different for everyone, but absolutely, we've all been in that position. I like um, I like what I do because it's simply that the, the these objects that I'm making, um, I try and obviously make them as best as I possibly can, and I like the idea that a couple of hundred years from now, somebody will be saying, "Oh, look, that's a that's a Coronoka," yeah. you know? Yeah. So that's cool. Anyway, very interesting that it started off with sharpening because it's um. A lot of makers probably don't spend enough time in that in that realm. I'm not being rude to anyone there, but yeah. um, you see a lot of knives, particularly on uh, on beginners tables, but sometimes on people that have been making for years, which are very very thick behind the edge and and not capable of doing the job for which every knife should be able to do. Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah, and people tend to want to. They think that even for yourself, Bob, that it was instant. And it's nice to hear that you spent a lot of time learning before you then actually went into doing, and then you spent five years sharpening before you then made that next step. Uh, at this day and age, it's tough 
we've got that balance between having so much information available where people can take it up a lot faster than even when I did it five years ago, yeah. uh, or nearly 10 years ago now. And there's that sense, I think, where people want that, they want your finish of a knife within the first couple they make. Yeah. And you see it a lot. People, oh, this is the second knife I've made. It's not perfect, but it's like, of course it's not perfect. If it's perfect, my God, on your second knife. <laughs> We're going to come find you because that's not cool. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, I'm still of... trying to get perfect times. Oh, years look. now. 18 years or something. Yeah, yeah, but I don't make enough. So a comment on, on perfection because we've always said it, it depends on how closely you look if we want to talk about perfection. And I just watched, it's an old, it's, it's not a movie, but it's a short video. And I think it's called 10X or The Power of 10. And it was done by um, Ray and Charles Eames, you know, the, the uh, architects that did furniture, some famous uh, furniture, the Eames chair. Anyways, they did this film and I think somebody commissioned them, but it's called 10X. And so they, it starts out with an aerial shot of a couple um, and they're having a picnic. And then the camera moves to the power of 10 away and then continues out and moves. I've seen it. <laughs> and, and so perfection really is about how closely we're looking. Mm. And that's that's really that's really it, isn't it? As 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 you get better and better, you start to use an optimizer more and more. Maybe it's older and older, and you start to realize how much the de detail starts to matter. But yeah. anyway, that's that's me. Um, yeah, we we were talking, Bob, before you came on. Uh, both Mert and I had just those bad experiences with timber handles where things weren't quite right, and it's like you get to that stage. I guess as an as a newer maker or early on, you could be more inclined to say, oh, that's all right, I'll, I can live with that small mark that don't necessarily want there. Or you can easily, you know, tell yourself that it's not really there or it's not that bad. And nowadays, <laughs> it's when you see something and you know it's not right and you just go, well, it's, I can't let that go. I've got to just now start, take that handle off and start again. Yeah. Um, and there's that stage where, I wish I'd started doing that earlier when I was making yep. because I know a lot of knives I sent out, um, you know, with another 10 minutes or 15 minutes of work on them would have been that much better. And then my ethics about it would have grown faster. Whereas now, uh, you know, wanting to eventually get into the journeyman Smith stuff and COVID's all put horrible stops on that, but it's not resting on, that standard where you just go, okay, this is good enough now. I'll just, that's where I just need to be. Yeah. And I think it was, is it uh, Kaizen, Kaizen, oh. the, the, the Japanese? Yeah. Yeah, about just Kaizen, trying to just um, continually improve, even if it's a very small amount. Yeah. Um, so I think that's something, I think that's what people need to sort of always look at. Um, you know, each knife they do, try and do an improvement on one small part of that. And it doesn't have to be profound. Right. Some people might not even know or notice a change that you've done that you know. And and it's like I said, being prepared to do those smaller things. So And it's it's I think it's tricky because the headset 
you, you can't be so paralyzed and frozen that you don't allow yourself to make some mistakes and accept mm. the fact that that's where you're at now and that you want to make an improvement. So you do the best you can. And if you look at it and you go, it's not perfect, but it's also too far to tear down. And so I'm going to accept that this is where I'm at, or maybe you cut it up and throw it away. But some people get stuck and they, <laughs> they stop making, right? And, and they're, all, they're trying to make it perfect. And um, I don't know. I'd just rather see people get um, completely into it and accept wherever they're at and then keep improving. Just keep okay. making We've got a little thing on there. I'm, I'm friends with Bill Burke, and Bill's put up a message reminder for me. But it's true. Like, it, it's pretty abrupt what he's written. <laughs> that, that's the Australian way. But it's true because I talked to Bill. I did talk to Bill about doing the Journeyman Smith stuff, and I've seen some people, very good makers, get into it before I was even interested and get into that mental state where it's just such a – hard process and a couple of years ago when I finally got to the US and saw Bill and he saw my knives and stuff he was like you know they're good they're, there's a few little suggestions about improving stuff but then when I was talking to him about you know doing the journeyman smith stuff yeah you know, his advice his, his advice as he just said there was just do it you make these knives now make the knives as you do them don't become this stress ball and absorbed in it and curl up in the fetal position crying because, you know, you've become so obsessed about it. Just make to that standard and you can do it. And and the COVID stuff, Bill, was just basically the delays, mate, like not being able to get over this year. My goal was this year to get over to the Blade Show and do the stuff. And, mm. and now I don't think we're going to be in Australia allowed to travel overseas until the end of 2021. So it'll be a couple of years away, but, you know, it's, it's there. It'll happen. So we've said it heaps of times on the show, uh, you know, if you're starting to make knives, um, the best thing you can do is a really reputable, high-quality course. And, and so that's your experience, I'm guessing, that you, you, you went and did that course and, and it was, uh, it was good, a good starting point. Like you skip a lot of the, of the trial and error stuff that a lot of people start with and choose to start with through watching, watching YouTube and all the other stuff that you can still get caught up in today. Um, Bob, you got back from the course. How did you turn this knife sharpening truck into a knife making business, if you like? What happened? What was next? It's interesting. Um, I immediately borrowed an anvil from a friend of mine. I bought a cheap cross bean hammer. Um, I decided to make a propane forge. Now, I went in 1992, and so propane forges were not. Uh, popular they're not ubiquitous like they are today i mean you know a propane forge is no big deal you can just throw one together at the uh american bladesmith society school they there was a propane forge that was built by built by um tim zawada and uh tim's a maker in michigan he's a really bright guy he's a pilot and um but he built this overly complex forge now i, I didn't i wasn't sure of it at the time but the nozzle was actually water cooled. So there was a, imagine a nozzle inside of a nozzle and that there's an inlet and an outlet pipe. Here's the nozzle. And there's a, whatever, a five gallon tank of antifreeze that would circulate 
just on convective, you know, temperatures, thermostat kind of deal. Um, and I went to the school with a buddy of mine who was an engineer, and, and they only fired it up once for us. So we learned on coal. So I forged with coal for two weeks, and I just thought, this is how you do it. And we watched that propane, and they were super careful when they fired this thing up. They were, like, really concerned and really took their time, and they fired the thing off, and then they only let it ran for, like, 45 minutes. I don't think anybody got to use it. Maybe the instructor used it one time, but it was sort of this sensitive thing. But I, I said to my buddy, once it was up and running, it was like 2,300 degrees. I thought, what if there's a failure at the weld, at the nozzle, and it starts to squirt antifreeze into the forge? It seems like you could get possibly a steam explosion. I'm not really sure. <laughs> but um, I just thought there's got to be an easier way to do this. So when I got home, I built, I got some castable refractory. And I got a uh, like a can, like a 25-gallon oil drum can that I cut in half. I lined it with castable. And, uh, I used a hair dryer and uh, a, a barbecue tank and some black hair pipe. And I, and I built it in my garage. And, and I just started forging leaf springs and, uh, because I love the – I just love the activity of it. You know, it just felt – cool and primitive and productive and um and a buddy of mine stopped by this is maybe day three of up in forging he comes by and uh we used to do crazy stuff together we used to build all kinds of stuff together we just have an idea and then we go and build it and so he had come by on his motorcycle and said um he goes well this is pretty wild because it was in a tiny little one car garage and um i'm in there pounded on steel and and uh he goes so so what's next how are you gonna do this and they said you know i think i'm done driving the truck around i'm i'm tired of going from restaurant to restaurant i just want to i want a physical location sharpening to me and i'm going to have a shop there and i'm going to take knives i know i'm going to drive there and and sell retail. And the next week, literally the next week, I found this beautiful storefront in the oldest part of town, which is the vibe I wanted because I wanted an old school kind of feel to the place. And um, I had a lease by the end of the week and uh, I built out a shop and I was there for five five years, six years. Excellent. Yeah, well. <laughs> so... What were you grinding on back in those days? Was how how much? What were you using to grind? I mean, I we're talking what early nineties? Ninety two. Uh, yeah. Nine. Yeah, ninety two. I took my first class. I bought a Birking. As soon as I got home from the class, I bought a Birking, and yeah. I think it was twenty five hundred bucks or something, which I didn't have, but I you know put it on a credit card or something and went because I looked at all the other alternatives: a sidearm grinder. And uh, a one by 42. And uh, know what? You know what? Actually, I had a two by 72 because I was using a two by 72 for my sharpening. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I had that machine early on. So I already had it. I was comfortable with it. And and so, yeah, that's what I used. Yeah. Yep. Got into it. Yeah, nice. That's a big step. Um, so, 
one of the things I've seen from my trips over to the US last couple of years, I think that most people from Australia would be really envious about is um, the size of the buildings that you guys can get to work in at a pretty reasonable price, even if it's a uh, a house with a with a barn or something to work in. Um, the size of stuff and also getting the equipment that um, that you've got. Can you give us a quick sort of a you know a verbal tour of some of the big pieces of equipment that you've got in your current workshop um, that you couldn't do without? Yeah. So, so I have to tell you about this first that first store that first workshop. So I went from a one car garage. <clears throat> I found the storefront. The storefront. <coughs> the storefront had retail. I mean, I had street. 200 feet of street-facing windows and 4,000 square feet. It, it, it's a it was a huge building. It was way more space than I needed because the knife shop, fully outfitted, was only 1,200 square feet. You're right. I ended up living in there as well for, for five years or something. So, but, um, and let's see, heavy pieces of gear. I have a 500-pound little giant which is a, like an amazing, beautiful hammer. Um, and and uh, actually, Bill Burke uh, really wanted that hammer very, <laughs> very badly, and he was trying to figure out how to get it. But um, luckily, my phone call landed like 10 minutes before his did. Um, so that's a beautiful piece of gear. Um, I recently bought a new hydraulic press, an Anyang, um 25 ton and it's just a screaming deal um it was six thousand dollars sixty five hundred dollars delivered from china wow and it's i mean the first hydraulic press um i had i built and i don't know about you guys but you know i'm not a mechanic and and uh I, i'm kind of a farmer welder and i just go i i think this goes here and that goes there and but my, my tools would rack a little bit, you know, under full tonnage. And I used it for 20 years and it worked great. But we started to come up with new projects and new ideas where any sort of racking or any sort of slop was not advantageous. And I, and I wanted ultimate control. So we thought about building a, a new hydraulic press, but for $6,000 delivered from China, it's like a fucking bargain. I mean, this thing is mm. such a great deal. Now, the the uh, the uh, controls that it come with, I didn't really care for because it's like electronic valving. So it's either on or off or full throw or off. And so we ripped all that stuff off and put a valve in so you can kind of feather your way. You know what I mean? Sneak up on a press and just give it a little squeeze or give it full press. So the hydraulic press. But... You know, I work with Tom Ferry, and uh, so basically I have two people in the shop. Um, Jessica's in the front, but she's also an industrial designer, so she has CAD capabilities. She's also quite good in Photoshop. She's great with a camera. Um, she does a lot of the online sales. So I have a – and then Tom Ferry is a master smith, and mm. Tom is like world-class engraver, Damascus maker, machine builder, the guy can build anything. So Tom's equipment is in the shop as well. So he has a hydraulic press that's probably 35 tons 
He has a hydraulic rolling mill that he built. I have a big rolling mill. It's a 10 horsepower DC herringbone gear um, rolling mill with uh, eight inch by six inch diameter rolls. And that's a beast of a machine. It'll, it will eat you if you're not careful. I mean, it'll just devour a pair of tongs if you're not paying attention. So that's a great piece of gear. Um, what else? We have two other air hammers, 60 kilo. Um, so we're kind of spoiled. We have a lot of gear. Mm. And it was, I think, one of the clips I saw, you know, I've always got that. You have workshop envy. I've got a very small shop, but it does what I need. And I've got the equipment there that I need to work with, although I would like more. But it was one of the videos of you making the knives that I saw. And it just reminds me of that typical thing for the US guys that we'd all want to be. You had like four drill presses lined up, yeah. four two by 72 grinders lined up, and then the camera pan, and then you had your big hammer and all the other hammers. And we just, <laughs> we just sit there and go, uh, drooling about that. But it's the same thing, I guess. It's not instant. And, and a lot of the makers coming in see that sort of stuff see my small workshop which has enough gear in it and they're like oh wow i need all this stuff but it's you know stuff that you build up to oh <laughs> <laughs> we got a bit of a battle going on here haven't we? <laughs> for, the, for the benefit of the people that are listening to this as an audio podcast uh bill burke's just come on about uh, you're welcome bob if i had bought that I couldn't have bought the 750-pound Chambersburg. <laughs> hammer battles going on here, is it? He's <laughs> hammer. It's not uh, the size that counts, gents. That's yeah. Right. <laughs> so uh, uh, you know, this is 30 years, 30-plus 30 years yeah, of yeah. equipment. And mm -hmm. I started out in a truck. Yeah. So. Keeping it real. Sorry, Kev. Speaking yeah, of instance, a lot of the people who start knowing you recently, they think Bob Kramer was making knives only a few years prior to that New York magazine, the New Yorker magazine. Oh. Yeah, people not people not aware of it that you're making knives a lot before then. Yes, that magazine, that article gave you more more exposure, but you were making knives way long before that an article and that, that made you rather more well-known yeah maybe 15 years yes hey. so in this in this storefront how quickly did you go from sharpening in a fixed location to to selling knives and paying the bills making selling knives you made uh well my first knives were crude they weren't uh yeah they were <laughs> chunky and clunky and and I wasn't making kitchen knives because when when you learn in Arkansas, you make fighters and buoy knives. That's what they teach you to make. And so um, and you know, when you first start forging and you're forging a buoy that's 10 inches long and this wide, that's a lot of knife, you know, and you're still figuring out how to move the material in the right way. Um, and so to forge out a chef's knife it didn't even it didn't even occur to me um and the 
you know, who's going to buy a carbon steel chef's knife? Like Japanese chef's knives were not popular. Everything was stainless. It all came from Germany or, or China or France. When I, you know, this is 1980, 85 to like 90. I started cooking in kitchens in, in 1980. So from 80 to I took my first knife class in 92. So everything is stainless steel. I mean, once in a while you'd see grandma's old butcher knife that was carbon steel, but never in a restaurant situation. So the um, my sharpening business was strong. I, I had a I had a business that could um, sustain me. Like I wasn't saving money, but I could live on it. And so as soon as I set up my shop, um, I had that business already strong and then I could supplement it with retail sales so I had three eight foot cases filled with commercial cutlery with pocket knives and four different brands of culinary knives and so we had the sharpening we could count on and the retail sales and then when I had time I would make knives and the first knives I made they just sat in a case and the first knife shows that I went to, when, when the light bulb finally went off and I started to make kitchen knives, I'd go to the Eugene Joe, and they just sat on the table. I never sold a kitchen knife. And other makers would come by, guys that you know, would come by and go, still making kitchen knives? Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, sorry about that. I mean, they didn't say that, but you could see they felt bad for me. Because like this, yeah, we, we do that to Mert all the time, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the so that sort of that's how it started. It's a slow beginning. When did it really, when did it really all click together and knife making took over as the primary source of income? What, what was the point? What was the tipping point? So I've I've always tried to take a a multi pronged approach and not just count on one aspect because i never know if that's going to disappear so i i've always done retail of some sort i've always taken in sharpening and and then i've made custom knives i think when the custom stuff took off um at some i'll tell you what i i had a uh, uh customers would come in and they'd say i want a hunting knife and so we do a drawing and then i would make that knife and um inevitably each project had a problem that I couldn't anticipate when I made the drawing because I just didn't have enough experience. You know, I knew a little bit about heat treat. I knew a little bit about forging. I knew a little bit about construction. And so I'd get into these projects and I would spend a bunch of time solving that problem, to try to make the knife right. And I, and I began to realize like I'm, I'm, losing, I'm wasting a lot of time. Like, I'm not making any money on this project. And as much as it seems expensive to that person, and we're talking a couple hundred bucks for a knife, I wasn't really making any money on the deal because I'm still figuring it out. So I had a customer come in that wanted a dagger, and she said she's going to use it for Wiccan, essentially witchcraft. Wiccan is... is oh, like, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Is, like an opinion or something. Yeah. yeah. And, and so she says, I want a dagger. It's this long, and I need to, it needs to have a white handle on it. So I made it with, like, a white micarta handle, and I made this dagger. It was nice. It was 
beautiful and, and, and clean lines and so forth. And then she came back like a few, maybe three or four months later, and she said, I need another dagger for my witchcraft stuff. I said, okay, cool. She goes, this one has a, needs that exactly the same. Same knife that you made, black handle. Okay, cool. And I'm happy for the commission. I'm thinking this is great. But as I'm making the piece, I'm starting to think, I, I go, I wonder what she's going to do with this knife. I mean, what kind of rituals would you do with a black handle? Not clearly this is a good knife and a bad knife. It was like, what the hell is this thing going to be used for? And I thought, I'm I'm in the wrong business here. I'm not, I, I don't want to service this. You know what I mean? Whatever anybody's crazy idea is, doesn't feel like, it's not resonating with me. And in that night, I just thought, I need to make kitchen knives. I'm not a hunter, and here I am making hunting knives. I'm making wicked daggers. I don't know anything about that. And I thought, I know how to use a chef's knife. I've used a chef's knife for 10 years. And all the stuff that I learned from sharpening, the thousands of knives that I've handled, I know what this thing should look like and feel like and all of the shit that I'm going to eliminate and all the stuff I'm going to put into it. The light bulb went off. Everything was clear. Like, that's exactly what I need to do. So I started a building. And um, within, I want to say, a month, I started to get publicity. The local paper was interested because the food network was taken off. Right? So the food network was... Seven days a week, 24 hours a day, somebody was on this channel cooking. So people were into wine and food and all this stuff. And, and here's this guy making an old-fashioned chef's knife. So I got a lot of publicity. Yeah, right. And, and, and they were using the chef's knife on the Food Network, if I understood that correctly? No, but just, any, but just as a flow-on effect. Yeah, yeah. Any any magazine said, oh, this network is taken off and the magazine needs to be filled with content. So they're looking for any content that is relative to this new food world that's taken off. Got it. Got it. Yeah, no, fair enough. And that was sort of a few years into the journey. That was 96. So so you're still at, yeah. In the last, the last, day, last year or last years of being at that uh, retail store. Yeah. 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 Awesome. So you're you're probably known also, Bob, with regards to your kitchen knives for um, the Damascus and also the inclusion of um, things like meteorite. When was the first knife, or or at what stage was the first knife that you decided to add that element to it? Um, the meteorite thing, I'm trying to think when that started. You know, I, I um, for a while, I had an import store. So I used to, I, I was sure, I had three jobs essentially. <laughs> As waiting tables. And then because I had this huge 4,000 square foot store, I thought, I'm, I love to travel. And so as I was traveling, one time I went to um, Guatemala and there were, we went to this craft up in the mountains. We went to this craft um, event where all of the merchants would lay their stuff out in the square, in the city square. And 
there was just such beautiful things, great masks and beautiful wooden carvings and this embroidered clothing. And so, you know, I got home and I, we were drinking some beers and I'm kind of penciling out how much all this stuff is going to cost. We decided to bring a bunch of stuff back and set up a quick and dirty little store. And it worked. All the stuff took off. So I had the opportunity to travel to different places in the world. And one of the places that I went was um, to Java. We went to Bali and bought a whole bunch of cool stuff because the crafts are like extraordinarily well made. And then we also went to Java just to see how it was over there. And we went to the Craton, we went to the palace, and there's this big meteorite. And I was also looking at all the Chris's that are for sale in Bali, in Java. I'm like, these things are super cool. And the whole story about them is really cool. And so that's when I heard about the meteorites. So, so what is, sorry to interrupt, what is the story behind a Chris? So the, so a Chris is, is sort of the, um, the religious completion of a, of a young man's um, sort of becoming a man. Right. It's, it's kind of like, I guess, in Catholicism, you have confirmation or it's a ritual. Yeah. You have to go yeah. there. And so a Chris is, a you know, these wavy knives, yeah. but they could also be straight. They're anything from a straight to 23 different curves. And so the, the young man, when when he is of the right time and age, he would go and sit with a bladesmith and they're known as empoods. And so the king has the, the court poet on one hand, and he has the empu on the other hand. Because in a lot of societies, bladesmiths were sort of like magicians. They're taking dirt, and they're turning it into a tool. They're, they're turning it into a weapon. And, I mean, if you have the weapons and the big dudes and the strategy, you get the gold and the girls and the land. And that's what it's all about. <laughs> so these guys, so the empus were really close, and... Um, a Chris is this, it's it's more than a knife. It's not used as a knife. It's like a, it's kind of like a magic wand. It's it's an antenna for attracting magic into this kid's family's life. So the kid would go and sit with the empu and they would talk about like, what do you, what do you want? What's your, what's your desire? What are you trying to do for your family? And in some ways the kid was trying to bring power to the family. In other ways, the kid was trying to bring more money or more fame or more whatever it was. And so the Enpu would sit and listen and talk and then decide what kind of a knife this kid needed. And, and that would depend on how many curves. So the, the knife itself res, represents the Naga or the sleeping serpent in the sea. And... and and depending on how many curves depends on how rapidly the Naga is moving. And, and so the, um, there was a big meteor fall in Java and this yep. meteor split into, and, and part of it is still under, a, outside of the palace and it's still under a pagoda and they give offerings to it every day because it's magical. It came from the astral plane. The other part of it, they gave to the Ampud. They busted it up and they doled it out somehow. And so these guys would take something from the astral plane and combine it with the terrestrial plane and fold them together. We're taking the magical powers from above 
and the earth and mixing them together and incorporating it into this serpent-like knife that we then give to the kid. And, you know, they would do prayers, incantations. They put it into the coal fire as they were burning it. And I love that shit. Those stories are so fucking cool. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's real. It's still alive. And these, there are stories in Bali about, you know, each, each, um, each family has a compound. And they have a little temple within the compound. It might just be a little box where they put offerings every day, a little bit of rice, a flower, some chopped up fruit. But they also do these offerings out in front of their house and on the street and in everybody's bedroom at the threshold. And there's also with outside of that, in the village, there is a temple. And often there is a box that a Chris is kept in, in the temple. It is like a crucifix in a Catholic church or something. These things are powerful. There are crazy stories about on certain auspicious days that all the Chris's from all the temples come out and swirl around the palace. There's there's tales of, of, of generals go into battle and they pull out their Chris and a stream of bees come shooting out the front of their Chris and envelops the uh, encroaching army and they win. Um, there was a temple in Bali where that had burned down three times. And they, they finally rebuilt it with cinder blocks because they said that Chris is too powerful. It, it's so powerful, it resonates, and it just burned the temple down. And so in this particular temple, cinder block, where the box is, there's like a scorch mark on the fucking wall. And then Chris, <laughs> <laughs> okay? Don't fuck around with it. Um, and so I got infected with these great stories and then also the technical challenge of like what the fuck do you get a meteorite and how does it (laughs) you know push this shit together so so that's how the meteorite one started yeah that's cool I, I i kind of feel bad we live closer to java than you do and yet i have no idea but uh, no, let's just I think, think of the Chris same thing. Before, yeah, I, I need to look into that. Need to need to it, get out more, probably. It's cool. Do you, do you get, mm. I, I could pull one out of the drawer if you'd like to see one. I have a beautiful well, one. We are sure. never going to say no. We're going to say no. What's happening? Okay, now come, now come. Hold on. Don't go away. No, I do this some episode. Yeah, we're not going anywhere. Oh, wow. Yeah, right. Whoa. So what materials is that? Tell us about it. Tell us the story. This is fine silver with gold, 24-karat gold overlay. And this character is called Rangda. So Rangda is a giant that lives in the forest. And so Rangda watches over the Chris. When you, when you put the Chris in its resting place, wherever it is in your house, Rangda is protecting the Chris. And when you wear the Chris, you know, you, you stick this in your sarong, and now Rangda is watching your back. Mm. right how fucking cool is that and this i watched him make these handles this this starts with 
silver beads that are about the size of um, like a small pebble. And they melt it and they make a sheet and they forge the sheet out and then they eventually raise this. That's made from sheet. It's not cast. It's sheet. This is chased and, and repassé. This is all chased and then overlaid with gold. And then, the you know, here's the... Let's see, where am I going? Here's the blade. Yeah, wow. Look at, look at this work in here. This is all hand-filed in. And there's so much symbolism. This, this represents a, a boat because they were seafaring people. I mean, they lived in the water, and, and, and they, they came from, like, India or another place in Southeast Asia. So this represents the boat. This represents an elephant's tusks for, like, strength and endurance. And they're just, they're just cool things. And the – yeah, right. Okay, what's the material in that one? They, what are they using? Are they are – they, uh, is it their own steel or are they – Yeah. So it's, it's their own steel, and then there's meteorite in here. This one's not terribly bright. It's not super high contrast. But, you know, they, this is all hand-filed and um, polished to get this groove in. They're not using any grinders. This is all bamboo sticks and abrasive. <laughs> right? I mean, gorgeous work. Um, you know, here's here's another one. This is the same thing. This sort of represents the boat, but then you can also see the Naga spirit. And then there's, you know, gold on the blade here. So I think I just got it, you know, I got turned on to the whole meteorite thing from those guys. And, um, and, and also, you know, I live in the Northwest. I live, and, and there's a, a huge... Um, there were indigenous people that lived all the way up to Alaska. So, so the, the western coast of the United States was incredibly rich in, um, in, in salmon and um, sea otters and lumber. I mean, the rivers in Alaska, when the salmon would come back, they literally said you could walk over the river on the backs of salmon. That's how big the runs were. So, so people had shellfish and crabs, and, and so they lived quite a rich, um, a rich life, and they had time for their crafts. So a lot of the Northwest crafts are, they look simple, but they're very sophisticated. And the Clinket Indians used to make these big fighting daggers. And the, the, the myth is, the, the legend is that... Um, the first blacksmith was a woman, and she forged this big clinket dagger out of a out of a meteorite. And uh, it's not it's not true, but it's a cool story. So I was inspired, and I I made a big clinket dagger and incorporated meteorite. So it, it started there. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, and so this legend, how old is that legend? Is that like thousands of years old? That legend of for forging a dagger from a meteorite, or? Question. I would say it's probably not thousands. I'd say it's a few, maybe 500. So my question, my question is, they, if it's not real, how did they know that you could forge the material from a meteorite? How, what? You know how stuff kind of gets mashed up together? Mixed so, in truth? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, in Nova Scotia, there is, <laughs> there is a big um, meteorite that is on the ground, and they have knocked off a few pieces of it, but it it uh, and they've made some um, like a halibut hook. So they have carved some small hooks out of it or a harpoon, like a whale harpoon or a mm-hmm. seal harpoon. So I think they knew that there's this magical material that's on the eastern side of the country and that stuff slowly migrates over. And then it, and then it's kind of magical, like, hey, look, I got this cool thing. And, and, um, and so then the first iron, because there's no steel on the west coast, there's no iron deposits. But there's copper. There's a lot of copper in Alaska. And so it was a chieftain's um, uh, uh, kind of a valuable thing, these copper shields. They would make these copper shields out of it, and it and it showed his wealth. And he would cut pieces off of it and give it away, and it showed how wealthy he was. So they knew how to forge copper. They knew that meteorite was a super exotic thing. And eventually they would get iron off of Russian clipper ships. So the Russians came over and realized that there were all these sea otters. And they used to call sea otters um, soft gold because their pelts are unsurpassed for um, warmth and water resistance. And there were thousands and thousands and thousands. They were easy to kill and catch. So I think they mashed all that stuff together. And when they made the first big daggers, they just went, oh, yeah, a woman did it. It's from a meteorite. And uh, sorry, I'm just talking a lot here. Bob, that's fun. That's kind of the point, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> Bob, yeah. when you make yeah, knives, hmm? when you make knives, where do you, get, where do you get your inspiration? Because when you look at your knives, like you're not seeing just like a knife with the steel. Like There's so many meanings behind it. There's so many symbols that you're using. So like most, all of your knives are coming with a theme. How'd you get the inspiration? Where'd you get your inspiration? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I, I'm, I'm always trying to make something that's layered. So, so I was successful at making a tool and I, and I got to the point where I could make more orders for eight inch carbon steel chef's knives were coming in than I could fulfill. And it got to the point where um, I wasn't, I didn't enjoy it anymore. You know what I mean? I, I think I went into making knives because I wanted this creative lifestyle and suddenly I had a factory job and I was just cranking out eight inch chef's knives and I, I wasn't happy anymore, and I thought I need to do something else. So then I began to experiment with Damascus and what that potential was. And I, and I think philosophically we're just always trying to push it. Got to the point where we really understood the material and how it would react for the most part. I mean, I'm still loving it. But um, then we discovered, Tom and I discovered how we could do figurative stuff. And now the whole thing exploded. It, it just opened up. So now we can actually put a message into the blade. Prior to that, we were just making a tool and we were trying to make it technically sound or aesthetically beautiful and technically sound. 
But now we can do all three. We can make it technically sound, aesthetically beautiful, and have some sort of a message in there. I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I have a huge ego, and um, I'm competitive, like a lot of guys that are in the knife-making industry. And so I'm always looking for an edge, not to make a pun, but I'm always looking like, how, does, how do I differentiate my work? How do I make it stand out? I got one life. I got one time I'm going through. Like, how do I make it, uh, how do I make a statement here? And, and so that's what we're trying to do. And I want the statement to be one that's kind of universal. Uh, and maybe, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally, totally get it. And while Bob's been talking here, we've just been cycling through his Instagram. You'll be able to uh, be able to find it, Bob Kramer Knives. Uh, so, Bob, it'll be a hard question, but what was the most memorable knife you made? It'll be like if I ask a knife maker to pick their favorite knives, it'll be like asking them to pick their favorite kids. But I'm sure you made a knife that's more memorable to you, like te technically better or not, than the others. Is there a knife like that? Uh, the first clinket dagger was quite memorable. Um, my master smith dagger was memorable because it was fucking challenging and really hard for me to make. What year? What year was that? Ninety-seven. Right. So yeah, early. You did the course ninety-two thereabouts. So five years. That's individual yeah. results, my very guys. Don't don't just yeah, sign yeah, up yeah. for our process. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got I, the course in '92. I took the course and I realized that um, I said, "Oh shoot, I just got to pay my fifty bucks a year. I can be an apprentice, and then if I pass this test five years from now, I could actually be a master of something. That's crazy." And I thought, "I want that. I'm I'm gonna get that." So um, you know, I did my journeyman Smith. And then I got busy running the store. I had two employees and, you know, you, there's a lot of stuff to sort of take care of to keep the thing running. And I swear to God, it was 30 days before the Atlanta show. And I thought, oh, shit, I got to do my master's plans. <laughs> and I um, uh, luckily I didn't have a wife or a girlfriend at the time. So I worked like 16 hours a day on just making it, but the dagger was like overwhelmingly challenging. And I made three of them before I got to one that I thought would um, pass. Yeah, in, three in 30 days. The whole knife, I just did three plates. Yeah, 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 in 30 days. I did all five of my test knives in 30 days. Wow. Including yeah, I'm still, I'm still working on my dagger. I started with Kevin Cashin about three years ago. So there you go. Just putting it out there. <laughs> I was obsessed. Yeah, um, but Bob, the perspective also with that com comment from Corin, Bob, is he makes one knife a year okay. with, a blade, with a blade that's two and a half inches long. <laughs> he probably still uses the same belt that he's using from 2012. <laughs> the spider webs on the grinder. <laughs> Who, who, Bob, in your early years of doing your knife making, especially when you went into the chef sort of knives, who were your influences in there? Or did you just go off the cuff and go, I'm going to do my own thing and I'm just going to let this evolve naturally? Yeah. I, the, nobody else was doing it that I knew of. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, there was nobody else was doing it, and I had a real strong opinion of what a chef's knife should look and feel like, and I just thought I want to bring that to life and see um, see how it works, see if people like it, see how hard it is to make. Um, yeah, nice. And it it um, it hasn't changed a whole lot since then. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. In the previous clips that Kyron was showing of your Instagram, um, saw a really nice folding knife in there too. Yeah. Um, yeah. You were saying before about not putting all of your eggs in one basket. Is that the same sort of thing? Like, obviously, you're a very reputable person. Well, obviously, a very reputable person for the chef knives. That market's probably unlikely to go anywhere south at this stage. But was the diversity into the folding knives just to break up that, or was it something that you just went, "Yeah, I really like these things. I'm going to make uh, this is another part of my market as well." I I think I've always been fascinated by folding knives and um, never took a lot of time to learn to make them. And then about. Uh, Six years ago, um, I wondered where Tom Ferry was. So I'd see Tom Ferry once in a while at knife shows or hammer-ins. And I've always liked Tom. He's got tremendous amount of integrity. He's a really good maker, and he's a really talented guy. And I just like the guy. And so one day I looked on Instagram six years ago, and I'm like, where's Tom Ferry? And Strangely enough, he had just posted a picture. So I messaged him and I'm like, Tom, what are you doing? How are you? What's going on? So we both picked up the phone. We, you know, had a, like an hour phone call to kind of catch up. And I said, you know, because I had offered him uh, a few years prior, I said, if you're ever interested in making Damascus, I have more demand and you make beautiful steel. If you want to make some steel, I'll buy it from you and use it in my knives if, if you want. And so uh, when we're on the phone call, I said, hey, did you ever consider, you know, what we talked about making the steel? Let's, let's collaborate. Let's make a thing. And he said, okay. So we, I said, uh, so, so we had gotten together and we're like, what are we going to make? And it's like, is, is it going to be a kitchen knife? It's kind of like, yeah, I guess it could be a kitchen knife. But I go, your thing is folding knives and my stuff is food. Let's make a picnic knife. Let's make a friction folding picnic knife with a bottle opener on the end of it. And let's just see what happens. And so we said, okay, we're going to do carbon fiber. We'll do, um, uh, I can't remember what the steel is. It's, uh, 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 anyways, it's a nice stainless steel. And um, so I designed the blade. He basically engineered it, made sure everything was working right, put them together. I sharpened them, marked them, and marketed them. And it went incredibly well. And, and I said, are you happy? He's like, yeah, that was fun. I like that. And I said, let's do another one. So we just kept going down that hole. And eventually, three years ago, I moved from Olympia to Bellingham, which is about two and a half hours away, further north. towards. And they said, Tom, you should move. This is a great town, and um, I'm going to have a big shop, and we can work together every day. Because there's something so much richer when you're collaborating. 
to have somebody in the shop that you can bounce stuff off of. They'll shoot down ideas or they'll encourage other ideas. Um, you know, very often I'll say, hey, Tom, what about this? And he'll say, oh, yeah, and then we could do this. And we're able to sort of um, compound or enrich each other's ideas. And then there's a certain amount of um, energetic uh, uh, enthusiasm, like when we we go to prove out a piece and, and, and you dip it in the etch and you bring it back. You're like, fuck, dude, look, that fucking worked. Did everything <laughs> oh, my God. It looks like a goddamn feather. What the fuck? And, and so that's fun to be able to share that. And, um, and, and, and so that, that's the folder is that it's, it's really Tom's, um, it's really Tom's thing. And sometimes I'll drive the design and sometimes he drives the design. Yeah, nice. Awesome. Very nice. Um, I'm looking at pictures of them on Instagram as she's talking. Uh, yeah, mind blowing, mind blowing. You should have a go at a barrel knife. Um, if you need any help, I'm more than happy. Uh, there's, uh, yeah, you know, very old design. Anyway, never mind. No, they're cool. <laughs> <laughs> they're a Swedish folding knife, Swedish cool. design. Yeah, I like them. Uh, cool. And, um, yeah, no, I was just lost looking at beautiful folding knives on your Instagram, and I highly recommend anybody listening. Uh, get on, check out Bob Kramer's uh, Instagram. What other social media are you big on? Do you market on? Instagram. Just Instagram. I noticed um, that most of your knives, if not all, are being done through uh, uh, basically an auction sort of format. Yes. So you you the knives go up and uh, they're auctioned off everyone, most or all. Once in a while, we'll put stuff in the store. So we have a line that we build that's called Shokunin. And, um, you know, we sort of refine the process down. 100 uh, chef's knives or uh, santokus. And we have a bamboo-shaped handle that we put on those. So those you can get in the store. Excuse me. Once in a while, we'll do a run of carbon fiber uh, folding knives. Yep, those just go into the store, but the stuff that we spend a lot of time on, or that is is sort of um, state of the art, those get auctioned off. No, no, that's that's a it's a great idea in a custom world where um, some people don't get the value, and uh, that you want to really be appealing to those that do and that are willing to willing to spend the money on it. So I think you know it's it's a good way to sort of maximise. <sighs> I'm not going to say the profit. It's not nothing to do with that. It's about it's about giving people what they want for the price they're willing to pay. That's that's well, what it is. So for me, it's it's about letting the market set the price. So, exactly. So I for years, um, I had the good fortune of being backordered, and you know I I'd work weekends. I'd work sixty hour weeks. I'd work on holidays, and my wife is in the financial world, and so she said. You're not charging enough for your work. And uh, she said, if you have a back order of two years, you're not charging enough for your work. And, you know, I'm just uh, – honestly, I, I just make kitchen knives. And I thought at the time when we had this discussion, my knives were like $600 for a chef's knife. And I go, that's 
it's crazy. Like I was a cook, like $600 for a chef's life. That's a lot of money. It doesn't make any sense to me. And she goes, it doesn't matter if it makes sense to you. You're not the customer. You're just making them. you got two years of back order. You're not charging enough. Then I had a customer buy a knife from me and write me a two-page letter. He's a Silicon Valley guy, you know, super wealthy dude. And I sent him a Damascus piece. He wrote me a two-page letter explaining all of the reasons why I wasn't charging enough money. So I just decided, okay, I, you guys, you two people are super smart. I know that. Let's put one on eBay and I'll put a reserve on it, which is my safety net price. I would normally charge $1,800 for this Damascus chef's knife. We'll put it on eBay with a reserve and just see where it goes. We'll put it up for three days and then um, we'll just see where it goes and let the market set the price. So it was really a way for me to get out from underneath trying to establish what is the right price for this knife. And it's a and it's a great thing. I you know so many conversations I have because whilst I only make one knife a year, or sometimes two. Last year was a two year, a two knife year. Um, the conversations I have with people are all around knife making. Like the business I work for here, we sell knife making supplies. We're the biggest distributor of knife making supplies in Australia. So I talk to an awful lot of knife makers, and this this question of how do I set my price comes up all the time, and it's a really difficult one because. If somebody, if somebody made a knife uh, that's been doing it six months and it looks like one of your knives, for example, not saying it's copied, but just saying it looks like one of your knives doesn't mean it's valued at uh, at the same at the same value because there's the, the differences are more than just the, the in the photo what you see in the picture and. There's a lot of people that come into the scene and they attempt to charge too much, but there's far more people that come onto the scene and totally undervalue their work. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's those, some of those people. Um, can I say Ian Stewart? Am I allowed to say it live? I just did, didn't I? <laughs> he's, he's the one that doesn't charge enough, so I'll be, so I'll be clear on that. Yeah. <laughs> so, but he's he's doing magnificent, beautiful work and uh, uh, fantastic stuff. And he'll go to a knife show and he'll sell uh, 40, 50 knives. And, wow. and and but he lives off the grid. He says my expenses aren't high. I live off the grid. I'm retired, and I I do everything by hand, and that's all I do. And so why should I charge? And I'm like, anyway, it, it's such a difficult difficult realm. And letting the customers decide is a uh, is, is a smart ploy. Uh, I like it, particularly when you've hit the master level that you have. So, yeah, I, I can't value my own work. I don't know how to do it at all. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Challenging. So, Somebody else has to do it. If you were to, if you were to give any advice to any starting knife makers, what will be that? What will that be? That's a great question. <clears throat> um, Right. I, I'm trying to think of, of where to start. It's such an open-ended question. Um, you know, be willing to make mistakes. Um, I would start with stock removal. 
and master stock removal. Look for clean design. Try to get super clean, um, clean lines and get a good design. Understand your heat treatment. It's so crucial. It's absolutely invisible. Um, nobody knows until they actually use the piece and sharpen the piece how well it's going to perform. And the heat treatment is everything, and it takes time to understand what, how that works and how that material moves. Um, I personally would stick with one steel. Pick one steel. Decide, are you going stainless or are you going carbon steel? And then stick with that one steel and experiment and, and be willing to grind out six simple blades of the same size and, and look at mastering the grind and then heat treat all six of those blades and then torture them, like cut shit, bend stuff with it, beat them with the hammer. And so you actually understand what it is that you did. It's like making a dish and then eating it. It's like making food and tasting it as you go along. People that cook and they don't taste their food, it's like, what are you doing? How do you know what's going in there? And then they don't eat it at the end. They just send it out. It's like, how are you going to improve if you don't, you know, take a bite and taste it and go, how am I going to adjust this recipe? I think you got to do, I, my suggestion would be to do that with the heat treatment. And now if you feel comfortable with the heat treatment and the grind, now go buy some fancy wood and put a handle on there and then take it to market. But grow slowly. Like these things take time. If you, if you're going to be an artist and, and you want to learn to draw, you get a bunch of sketchbooks and, and the sketchbooks shouldn't be precious. It's practice paths. And once you fill that book up, save it or throw it away. That's not for sale. This is to train yourself on how to be an artist, how to see, how to get it onto paper, how to express yourself. And there's such a rush to, you know, people romanticize. They see YouTube, they see Forged in Fire, and they're like, I want to do that. And so they get the costume and they get a couple of the tools and they bang a knife together. But there's the depth isn't there. You know what I mean? And, and, yeah. and so I would say go slow, become the craftsman, trust your work. I mean, make it so that it is really reliable and that you go, yeah, that's the way I want it to perform. The thing is that there's there's a learning curve to know what a knife should be like on a stone. You've got to buy two or three knives. You know, you've got to buy a Japanese piece and you've got to buy a production piece and you've got to make a piece yourself and put them all on the stone and kind of work it and go, oh, there's a real difference here. You know, some of these knives chip out like crazy. And um, it's a problem in the heat treatment. And I don't care if it came from a big manufacturer or not. They make mistakes as well. And, and so when you have that, when you start to develop that sense, now you know the craft and you can move forward confidently. And, and when you sell that knife over the table, you're like, I'll, I'll back it up. I mean, my guarantee is as long as I'm alive and still making knives, uh, I'm, I'll stand behind that knife, and that's how confident. And because if it fails, if I made a mistake, if I fucked up somewhere in the heat treatment or whatever, 
I want to make that right. You know, I hate this this high production stuff that we buy. This some of this Chinese stuff that's advertised on Instagram or whatever, and you get it, and you're like, this is an absolute piece of garbage. What they have figured out is the promotional end of it. The promotional look amazing and then you get the thing and you're like there's no quality here there's no spirit here there's no craftsmanship here and i think what we're trying to do is not only create a lifestyle for ourselves which is incredibly rich and that can provide for you for the, your whole life not only the creative part but the financial part the engagement part and the and the fraternity part but you can change somebody's life that you sell this tool to because now they get the experience of using like a really beautiful tool if it's real. If it's bullshit, you've just popped their bubble and they're going to they're gonna be like, damn, I'm disappointed. The guy looked like the real deal. Well, I think also because of the changing times, you were saying about the, the new makers to be – uh, patient and get better at their crafts but when they look on the social media and see the makers who are doing it well or who look seemingly successful they rather focus on the marketing side of things versus getting their crafts better because i, I want to be that guy i want to be that guy so which one is the one that you can master easier make it nice for that long or marketing marketing seems to be the always easier route to go to yeah and and I, I sort of, I, I feel bad for some of the young people because they have been steeped in this realm since they were kids. They've had some sort of a device since they were kids. And so they're, it's at their fingertip to like take a video or a shot of themselves. And that's all they know. And look, we all know this stuff is poison. It's not good. It is a vehicle. I use Instagram, but it's, it's fucking with your head. Like you're looking, I'm looking for those likes and I know it's an illusion. It's not real. That's not how my business runs. Mm -hmm. I post those pictures because part of the reason is I, now I get to speak to you guys and I wouldn't know you guys otherwise. Like I yeah. haven't been to Australia, but you know my work. And so we had a connection and then you reached out and now we're talking. That's cool. But as far as believing what's happening via social media, that's like poison and crazy, and, and we got to kill that shit. Or, or at least we have to talk about it. We have to acknowledge it and, and use it for, for what it is. But I don't think you can – I know you can't jump from I'm going to slam a knife together and put it on Instagram and make $1,000. That's wrong. It's wrong. This is bullshit. <laughs> we say it a lot, <laughs> So part of your advice – which just rang true with me for the new maker is regarding the steel steel choices and sticking with a particular steel or maybe a couple of different steels and then learning the most out of them. That's one of the things, especially with, you know, we, we have a Facebook group where we get a lot of people asking questions and that's one of the key things which just, I don't know, it just does my head in a little bit is you get these guys and they're like, oh, I've used 1075, I've made two knives, now I'm using 80 CRV2. And, but what about this and what's the best deal? And it's like, man, you've made two knives with a steel and you've not even touched the surface with it. So 
hearing that from someone like yourself as well, this is sage advice to go out to the people that listen to this in the future is work on a steel till you know how it works and you can get that heat treat down. Like I said, so you could put a 100% guarantee on it. If it doesn't work properly, it's probably not the user, possibly not the user. It's probably something we've done in the heat treat. Or you can stand back on it by saying, I'm so confident that I've used this steel so much, I know the ins and outs of this steel, you should not have a problem with it. Here's the other deal, is that these steels, if, if you look at the recipes, if you look at the heat treater's guide, that's what we use. I don't know if you guys use the heat treater's guide, but essentially it's this big, thick book that's got all of these recipes of all of these different industrial steels. And if you look at the recipes, there's a parameter for each element. So let's say 52100, for, for example, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to pull these numbers off the top of my head so they could be slightly off, but essentially yeah. 52100 should have something like 0 0.90 carbon to 1.3 or something like that percent. So you've got this spread. The manganese also has a spread. So the manganese can be, again, riffing 0.45 to... 0.65% manganese and so forth for the chrome, the same thing. You've got this variation. If you start to push those elements, let's say the particular batch that you bought is on the high side and it's got 1% carbon and the manganese is also on the high side, it's 0.65 and the chrome is also on the high side, it's 0 0.70 that steel compared to 52100, it's still within spec. That's at 0.90% carbon. It's on the low side of the manganese and the low side of the chrome. They, those two steels are going to heat treat differently. But they're both labeled as 52100. Bob, I can personally attest to that. I managed to get a hamon, proper clay quenched hamon in 52100 that had a probably lower manganese content. Yeah, it was something that seemed to be like didn't make sense, but must have a lower manganese content. Yeah. So I, I yeah, there's um, there's a lot going on in steel. I sell a lot of it, and I'll tell you right now that 99% of what we sell in steel is hype. Um, so <laughs> it's the latest fashion. I call it the steel wank. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And, yeah. And we, we see it all the time. People bringing up and saying, oh, I need some CPM 90V because it's the best steel in the world. It's like, what are you gonna, how are you going to heat treat it? What's heat treating? Right. What's heat treat? Doesn't it come hard? <laughs> hey. And, and you, have these, you have these conversations where you think, yeah, you really, please, get some 1084 and let's get started. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, all good. Absolutely. Can't, can't agree with that one more. So do we want to go to a couple of – do we have any enough user questions down the list on the side there? Yeah, well, I, ask? I did have a couple there, mate. And uh, the first one was from uh, Andrew Smith, which was um, you're going to come out to Australia and do a symposium. Now, I have personally spoken to you via email about coming out to a symposium, and I think there was a show on or something on at the time, and for whatever reason it didn't work out. Do you recall? I can't. Yeah, I can't remember exactly what was going on. Um, would We'd love to come. Um, uh, it's a long flight. And uh, so, you know, 
for me, just getting on a flight and, and coming down is, is that I really got to plan that out, especially these days with Kofefe and all that shit that's going on. But, um, <laughs> uh, but I'd love to, you know, I'd love to come. I'd, I'd, I'd love to meet you guys in person and I'd be happy to do uh, a symposium. So let's just keep working on it. We'll figure it out. Yeah, we will. We will. We've had, awesome. um, so, so yeah, we've had quite a few, Bob. Uh, we had Carl Royal last year and Rodrigo Sofredo. Kevin Cashin, um, Bill Burke. We we, so, we look after our guests. We look after our guests when they get here. That's yeah, that's great. You look at my you look at my Instagram. You'll you'll see that. Okay, so um, uh, the next one was from Wendy Tomkin, who says uh, you might have covered this. When learning, did you find that you often make the same piece several times before you're happy with it? Yeah, for sure, absolutely. I mean, it was what I was saying at the beginning or a few minutes ago that, you know, you make six or seven pieces. I'll tell you when we really learn a tremendous amount. If we do a run, let's say we do 50 folding knives and they're all identical, man, you learn, there's so much to be learned about doing 50 pieces, one right after another, because you, you get an idea early on, but there's a certain uh, timidness about maybe executing it. And after you've seen 25 of them, it becomes clear, like, absolutely, I need to do, I need to make this change, I need to round this, or whatever it is. Um, and, and I actually think that this goes for almost anything, that you need to do multiple pieces of a thing before you start to drop down through the layers of understanding what the hell that thing is, what it, what it really means to like refine that as far as you can go. Because I know for me, I, I'm kind of a slow learner. So I'll make a thing and I'll look at it and I'll handle it. And then I'll go to sleep and I'll continue to think about it. And I look at it the next day and it, and I see new things that I didn't see when I was making it. Um, sometimes if I'm making a piece, I actually have to, I'll get to a certain point and I have to set it down, go somewhere else in the shop, do something else for a period of time, maybe it's a half an hour or two hours, and then I'll go back and pick it up and, and just try to see it with complete fresh eyes. So yes. Yep, good, good, good response. Scott Gregan says, and I don't know if this is true, Scott is a young knife maker. I would say he's well under 20, um, running out of uh, Brookdale in New Zealand. Um, he's a regular listener. Amazing how one of your knives sold for 231000 To your knowledge, is that the most expensive chef knife ever sold? And if so, how does it feel to have hold that title? Um, it, as far as I know, it's probably the most um ever sold uh it's an interest it's a mixed bag to hold that title i don't really feel like it's a title the result of it i mean the reason that it sold is not you know great news um <clears throat> it was bourdain's knife he was a cool guy i'm sorry he's gone um and uh you know if i'd rather have him here then hold that title. Well, t tell us the story about it because many of us, myself included, don't know the story. Uh, so, and I'd say probably Scott doesn't know the story either. He's probably looking yeah, at just from the sounds of it. Yeah. yeah. So, 
you guys know who Bourdain is, right? Yep. Yes. I don't. I'm, I'm just a retard. I, I, so I just live under a rock. I'm sorry. Okay, so, no. so Bourdain was a chef in New York. He, he ran a French bistro in New York City in Manhattan called Leal. And, um, you know, he, he was like a lot of chefs in, in that it's kind of a, uh, uh, it's a rough and tumble gig, right? I mean, you work hard, you party yeah. hard. There's often a lot of drugs and, and, uh, and, you know, it's, and, and you make just enough to get by. It's kind of like factory work. And, and, but Bourdain was a super uh, creative guy, a quite a good writer. And he wrote an article that I think got picked up in the New Yorker and it got tremendous amount of traction. And then somebody offered him a book deal and he wrote a book called Kitchen Confidential, which he essentially wrote what was going on in kitchens in the 1980s, how much cocaine was being snorted, how much sex was being had, <laughs> all the shit that was going on in the cooler. And it was a great book and it was really well written and it, and it went like bestseller. So this guy goes from being, you know, a heroin user and, and running this French bistro to now being a renowned writer and in demand. And he has a great perspective, a great voice. He's very articulate. He's really smart. And that he was able to parlay that book into a TV show called No Reservations and traveled yeah. all over the world and ate with people. And, and he became quite a celebrity. And um, I met him um, when I was up for an award. It's called a Rare Craft Award. And... Um, I ended up winning the award and we had lunch together. He and myself and my wife and um, got to know him a little bit. And then um, about a year later, they came to my shop and shot a video called uh, Raw Craft and um, got to know him a little bit then. And he asked if I would make him a knife. So I made him a knife with a meteorite in it folded and so forth. And I sold it to him for what I would normally, actually a little bit less than I would normally sell it for. I didn't auction it off. That was the deal. I just said, yeah, I'll, I'll make it for you and it'll be $5,000. And he said, okay. So I, gave him the, I sold him the knife. And, um, and then he committed suicide a couple of years ago. And um, they auctioned off a lot of the things that he had collected throughout his life. And he's known all over the world and, and – People wanted the knife. It was like the top thing that went in his estate um, because he was a chef, because he was passionate about food, because that's what he focused on. And and so it went for, for big dollars. The thing I'm really grateful for is that, one, I got to know him and, and, and hang, hang out with him a little bit. Um, but also that that money, some of that money went to scholarship for chefs at the – Culinary um, Institute of America, and then a part of the money also went back to his family. So I think that that's all Beautiful. good stuff. So you didn't, sorry, you didn't sell a knife for that money. End of story. And end of story. And and you know the men's health issues that have been raised there. Some another subject close to all our hearts and touched on it several times in the podcast. So. Um, yeah, anybody feeling that way should uh, not think how valuable their knives will be afterwards, but rather get in touch and let someone know what their problems are and, and let, let, let us help. That's, I think that's the message there. 
Bob, that episode you guys did was for me like watching your two superheroes talking about the rock band that you enjoy. Like something that you wouldn't see like in a parallel universe kind of thing. It, it was so cool to see because I, I followed them for years as a former chef and obviously I was following your craft as a fellow knife maker. So that that was a that day when you opened the Instagram was a sad day to learn that news. It was a it was a tough one to swallow. Yeah, agreed. But I I took something a little different out of that video, and it was when you poured a glass of whiskey at the end, and the camera panned down, and I was like, "Nice, these guys are drinking whiskey out of jars." <laughs> 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 workshop <laughs> workshop whiskey. It doesn't matter if it's out oh, of a paper cup or a glass jar. That's the best drink. Yep. <laughs> I've, had, I've had a lot of drinks with a lot of guys around the US in various uh, vessels, but the same thing is just enjoying that drink at the end of the day. <laughs> Amen. Oh, it's, it's, yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Actually enjoying a drink at a knife show as well. That's um. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. We've got a couple more questions. You've got time for a couple more, Bob? Or? Sure. Yeah. Okay, so Corey Cunningham says, What's the biggest uh, knife-making business failure, and how did you get past it? Oh, good question. Uh, what's the biggest knife-making failure? Um, God, I'm, I, I'm, I'm stumped, and, and it's not because I haven't had a lot of failures, I think maybe because there's so many failures and you just kind of go, okay, that happened. Um, I got to, I got to fix this. I have to repair this. I mean, I remember telling somebody at one point, um, I'm going to write a book on knife making and it's going to be thick, big book. And on the first page, it's going to say, solve the problem in front of you. And the rest of the book will be completely empty. There's nothing else in it. That's all you have to do is solve the problem in front of you. And, and, and there's times that I invested in stuff that I thought, oh, these are going to sell really well, and they don't. And you end up taking a loss on them and just liquidating them. And you just got to keep going. You just, you just got to keep erasing, you know, pushing the mistakes aside and just keep, keep moving forward. Um, yeah, I – I don't, there's not one thing in particular that I could think, oh man, that was, I almost burned my shop down three times. So those were all mistakes of some sort. <laughs> I've had three shop fires where I've ex have emptied every extinguisher at my fingertips. And luckily the building survived and I survived. Um, what, was, yeah, well. what, was the cause of, what was the common cause? Was there a common cause? Sparks. Um, was one. Uh, one, I put a piece of brass in a furnace and I got distracted by a customer and the brass melted down and I had zinc fumes that had accumulated about a three foot green cloud that you couldn't see through that was, you know, that was filling the building. And, um, uh, you know, so I had to shut the forge. There was no getting the brass out of the forge because it had already turned to, a, you know, all the elements had separated out and the zinc was. So I had to evacuate that smoke. I got um, clearly zinc poisoning 
Um, I felt like shit for like 10 days. I had to drink a lot of milk and, and kind of take it easy. That was a big mistake. I had a somebody told me at one point to put a vacuum on my 2x72 grinder. And the way you stop the sparks from going in your dust collector, you put in a spark arrestor box that's got like a little labyrinth in it. Well, the fucking metal dust just collects on the first wall of the labyrinth and builds up until you got steel wool inside there. And then one spark that's lively enough just sets that thing off. I, I walked into the back room. I heard the smoke alarm go off. And there were four-foot flames all along the wall that luckily I was able to put out. The building didn't go down. Um, you know, I've done lots of stupid shit. I think there's some lessons in that one. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And, uh, uh, Mert, you, uh, uh, Mert had a similar incident, didn't you, Mert, with the vacuum cleaner? Yeah, I was, I, was making a, I was making a crucible steel, and I was using my shop vac as the air source. And all of a sudden, it starts sounding funny, and I can see like my shop back dripping. Yeah, it melted. Yeah, so yeah, that happened. What are you doing with your steel that you're making? Um, so you're actually making steel at the moment. Yeah, we're making steel in a crucible. So I have an induction heater, oh, right. and we start with pure iron, electrolytic iron. That's like six nines pure, and then. I use a triple beam scale and a digital scale to melt, measure out the elements because, um, you know, as we were talking about the chemistry of steel, I want to control the chemistry down to like two digits beyond the decimal point and then see how that stuff performs. So I'm, I'm trying like a chef, I'm trying to grow my own vegetables. I am trying to feed the pigs so that I can control the taste of the meat. That's, that's my goal. I want to start from the beginning. The other thing is I love the experience of being that close to the craft. I bought steel. I've done um, analysis on the industrial steel, and I've seen the sort of variations that I talked about a few minutes ago. Mm. So having the capability to make steel in the shop from scratch, I feel like I can control all of it. And I'm also responsible for all of it from the get-go, from the jump. So as long as I know my elements are pure, the rest is on me. How it comes together, how it's heat treated, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Bill's question was, what are we doing? Well, I mean, we're making knives. I'm just, I make the steel and then we combine it. And every project that we do, there's something to be learned. I mean, maybe it's because I'm kind of a slow learner, or maybe because there's so much to be learned, or maybe it's both of it. But um, we just feel like we keep learning so much about this material. And it's, it's rich stuff. It's kind of weird. We've been making steel for a long time. We've been making these tools for a long, long time. And there's still more stuff to learn. So, in a sense, it's super exciting. And Brilliant. Yeah, Cole here at, uh, at Gamaco is very, very keen on this and uh, he's actually preparing a little kit for people with graphite and, and iron powder and everything all ready to go so you can smelt your own steel. I don't know how it'll go, but he's having fun, so we'll just let him do it. 
Yeah. <laughs> could go with well or it could go with four foot flames in people's workshops. <laughs> Whatever. It's all good to me. Okay, look, yeah, that's it. <laughs> we've been uh, we've been using up a lot of your time and we're coming on to the uh, coming on to the two hours. So well so probably appropriate to let's let's give the last question to Ian Anderson who is from the US. I think he was in Colorado. Uh, he's listening, so we'll give him a chance to have a shot at the title there. Uh, what's your favourite tool or jig that you made for your process in making knives? Fuck. <laughs> We're hitting you with the hard ones. <laughs> um, how, about, how about you send us a picture of it? Send Murder a picture or something as you think about that over the next couple of days, and we'll put it up on our Facebook page. Okay, sounds good. When you're working in your shop over the next few days and you find something, flick murder picture and we'll, we'll share it on Instagram and, and that's a great way to finish up. People can, can duck over to our social media. You can find us on Facebook on uh, Knife Making Down Under where you can watch live broadcasts and participate. Uh, you'll find us on Instagram and um, where else are we, guys? T-shirts. If you want T-shirts, we've got awesome T-shirts as well. Uh, we all should figure out a way to get them to our special guests. Yeah, we'll get a T-shirt we'll over to you at some stage, Bob. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll, one way or another, we'll figure that out. It says tools that make tools. That's us, see? Sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for indulging me. I appreciate you guys uh, for giving me the opportunity. Thanks for oh, your time, welcome, Bob. Mate. No worries. Well, uh, I'll just hang, hang, a, hang about when I press end. We'll just have a quick chat after. All right? Yeah. So, so, all right. So, um, all right, guys, thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening.